or not to be? That is the question. Whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune or to take arms against a sea of troubles and by opposing end them. Welcome to Pivotal Film. I'm John Nolan. And I'm Mario Ponzio. And this is episode 57. Mm-hmm. The Summer. year of birth of my father. 1957? Yeah. You're already drinking the beer. You're already halfway through that beer. Yeah, we've been talking about Tales from the Crypt for like 20 minutes. I have not touched my beer yet because I respect the authenticity of first taste. Listen, if you want to talk about Tales from the Crypt for 20 minutes, I'm going to drink a beer. That's how this works. So we talked about, well, Tales from the Crypt is, is great, and I could talk about that for hours. Yeah. Hours. <laughs> is that what this is going to be? Yeah, this is actually just going to be Tales from the Crypt episode now. <laughs> Our episode 57 is just Tales from the Crypt. Do you want to talk about uh, this uh, beer, which does not look like it came from a crypt. It looks very sunny yeah, and it's, bright. Uh, we're going back to East Rock Brewing from out of New Haven. It's their Meyer Lemon Goes, Meyer Lemon and Coriander Wheat Beer. Um, it is it a 4.5 percent. That smells gozy. It um, that smells salty. Yeah, we're gonna. I'm dinking a contaminated beer that you've already half drank. Well, that's a good goes. I I'm a, a become a super big fan of this beer. They had it on tap at Cafe Nine. A couple of weeks ago. And it's a German style. And also, it's a wheat beer. Goes are always wheat beers. Mm-hmm. And you hate wheat beers. I hate, but the lemon turns the wheat, the weediness into like something really significant. In but the, the, salt, the saltiness, too, of a goes. It's like, just... The, the goes the ghost saltiness always kind of like balances out the mm-hmm. really ridiculous sweetness of um, the, the wheat beer. Because the wheat beers are always too sweet or... Not malty, they're just they're just sweet. Mm-hmm. Uh, what what's nice about this is this tastes like less like a goes. I mean, it's got the saltiness that you get with a goes, but it tastes like a shandy that mm. isn't garbage, which shandies are in, well, like inherently it, garbage. It's like a complex shandy almost. You well, because it's mean? just it's not just, a shandy. Yeah, that's, just, that's what it I mean. tastes like what a shandy wants to be. Um, but the, yeah, the guy at Cafe Nine, I ordered it because it was East Rock and I hadn't had it before. And I, I had seen it around. I was like, oh, I'm, I'm going to have that. And they have it on tap. I'm going to get it. And he's like, just so you know, it's really sour. And I was like, good. I'm, we're drinking sours all the Who time. Who said that? Me, the bartender. Did you laugh? I was just After like, I don't care. It? Just give it to me. I drink After sours you drank all the time. It, did you go like. Well, it's like. Because it's not like. It's, this is not super sour. It's not super. It's like nearly, the perfect. It's like the perfect sour. kind of sour. It's like a beautiful. This like, is not an OEC beer. Mm-mm. We stopped to introduce the OEC to this podcast. Yeah, we still have a bunch of work to do. But uh, maybe August will be the month of sour. I decided not to do, to go crazy this week. So wait, where'd you go? Uh, that said, this was super sour. Cafe Nine. Hmm. He's like, it's really sour. He was warning me. 
Like I was gonna, my head was gonna implode from puckering. I think this is refreshing. I love it. I fucking love it. This is a beach beer. This is a good beach beer. I mean, I know you're not a beach person, but imagine if you were stuck on a beach with your children, like your children wanted to be on the beach. I mean, we just gotta stop and get a six pack. Like, could you tolerate the beach with the six pack of this? No, uh, no. I, I'm, I, me and the beach are not friends. But. Do I have to would, walk on the beach, or can people carry me out into the beach? Do you have a book? No, no, I don't no. want to walk on the beach. <laughs> you, there's a. Are there any other people on the beach besides me and my kids? Maybe your wife. Yeah, I mean, so besides me and my fa- my immediate family, are there any other people? But Greg is a, Greg is thirty feet away. You know, I mean, I like Greg, but. Really but he's just watching a Star Trek episode. On what, a tablet? Yeah. I don't think Greg has a tablet. He's still got a flip phone. <laughs> okay, he's watching it on his flip phone. <laughs> the frame rate on this phone stinks. <laughs> he's just looking at still pictures from his favorite episodes. Um, he's looking at those, uh, the Tribbles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's looking at pictures of Tribbles. Tribbles? Is that what they're called? Trib- tribbles. Tribbles. Tribbles? Looking at pictures of Tribbles. Tribbles. Um, it's like Greg's porn. So, I, I guess my review... That the review you want me to make of this beer is that this beer would make me forget that I'm on a beer, I'm on a beach with people, including Greg, on his flip phone watching triple porn. This would make me not care about any of that. I, I guess. Yeah. Outside. Sure. Uh, deck yeah, beer. Yeah, yeah. Oh, deck, deck, beer. deck beer. Deck beer. Deck beer. I got to go to a children's birthday party on Saturday. If they had a bunch of, <laughs> if they had a bunch of this. I'd be happy. I'm also going to a party on Saturday. A children's birthday party? No. Yeah. There you go. Bunch of grad students. Going to probably be more alcohol at that party than your party. I don't know. If they allow alcohol at the place where they're having this party, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of alcohol. <laughs> That's fair. Those uh, parents, they got to forget that they're parents. Yeah, sometimes you do, Mario. Sometimes you do. It's called life. It's called, <laughs> it's called you know, life. Not necessarily. <laughs> It's my life. Because I drink, and I don't think about kids. <laughs> Every time I drink, I go, you know good tastes good about this beer? The lack of having offspring. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does make, I suppose, enjoying beer hard. Because every, every sip has a ramification. <laughs> you know your child is judging you. Let's say, yeah, well, yeah, exactly. It's, I don't drink while they're awake. Time has come, Tom. We've been talking about this We're waiting. for several weeks. Several long, intense weeks. Have they been intense? Well, for me. Because <laughs> I've been building up how excited I was for this event feature. Mm-hmm. The big feature of June 21st, 2019. It's the one it's big come. movie. And it's come. And I, day, yeah. 7 o'clock, I sat down in a theater. I sat and waited. W- waited some more. The, the film wasn't working, so I kept waiting. Oh, really? Around seven seventeen, somebody stood up, walked out, and was like, "Oh yeah, they uh, the the disc isn't working." Around seven nineteen, a Midsummer trailer played, and then we experienced Child's Play, the remake of the nineteen eighty eight Don Mancini scripted horror classic, which would lead on to six sequels of varying quality. Mom, I need to tell you something, and I need you to believe me. I think Chucky did something. 
you know something, you better tell me. Something's wrong with Chucky. Child's Play is a vast reimagining of the 1988 original. Uh, the original, of course, Charles Lee Ray, played by the now solely kind of only known for Brad Dorif. He's got he's got he's got his best supporting actor nomination, you know. And but really, everyone just knows him for Chucky. Um, had transferred his soul into a good guy doll, and then uh, quipped smart for a bunch of movies and killed a bunch of people. <laughs> this one, not bad at all. This one, a buddy doll. Uh, Created by the Caslin Entertainment System. It's basically Apple. Uh, they okay. have home features like temperature control and remote control cop cars and music and televisions. The Buddy, the buddy, the buddy doll? The, the Caslin Entertainment Company, whatever, uh, the Caslin Corporation. Yeah. Um, but their, their Buddy doll is the like humanoid sort of robot that will talk to you and help control various things. You uh, can ask the Buddy to... Raise temperature. The buddy will learn from you. Seems and, like a terrible and idea. Print on you. It does seem like a bad <laughs> idea, but don't you worry. The buddy doll has behavioral controls to prevent it from violence, to prevent it from language, to prevent it from all sorts of nastiness. Alexa has the same thing. Mm-hmm. Yep, I've heard. What happens though is a suicidal Vietnamese worker, after being yelled at and fired, decides to on one buddy doll wipe that all away. Get rid of all those controls. Mm -hmm. And this buddy doll gets shipped out. The Vietnamese worker, uh, in a little bit too on the nose moment, jumps off the roof of a building to commit suicide. No good? A little bit of... Well, I mean, like, with all the suicide net talks and Mm -hmm. the Samsung things, maybe we shouldn't have done that, guys. Orion. Also, really exciting to see a movie open with the Orion Orion stars. I was really excited about that. Um this buddy doll is shipped to, I believe it's still Chicago. Uh, maybe it's not Chicago. The city doesn't really matter. Uh, to it's the same universe as Widows. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> Brian Tyree Henry is in it. Um, to uh, Karen Barkley and her uh, partially deaf, socially awkward son Andy, who's now a teenager in this film. Um, well, that's same less cool. same struggles. She's still a little poor. Still, mm-hmm. little, you know, still working in a kind of Walmart-esque shop. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's able to procure a doll that has been returned, a buddy doll that's been returned because it doesn't work very well. Um, and it doesn't work very well because this is the same exact doll that uh, the Vietnamese worker took off all the behavioral controls. Ah. For the first 20 minutes, Mark Hamill and uh, Gabriel Bateman playing Andy Barkley, kind of get along, and they kind of have a growing thing. Literally, like, 25 minutes of this, like, 20 to 25 minutes of this movie is just, like, Chucky being kind of weird, but trying to be Andy's friend and being creepy, but not really doing a lot. Are there any Star Wars references or puns? There is only one. From Chucky? From, or uh, from Buddy? From Andy. So, he, oh, okay. Andy, Andy says, uh, like, what is, what's my name? Like, Chucky... Before his name says, "What am I going to be called?" And he's like, "Your name's Han Solo." And then <laughs> Chucky goes, "My name is Ch- Chucky." Chucky. <laughs> and he's like, "No, Han Solo. That, that's it. That's the only Star okay. Wars reference." Um. Eventually, uh, they, him, and Andy find some friends because they're amused by this doll, and they watch the Texas Chainsaw Massacre two. Hmm. And 
the Chucky dolls really... This movie is not a, a crazed serial killer. Uh-huh. This Chucky loves Andy and wants Andy to always be happy and hates when Andy's sad and wants Andy to be his best friend. And that conceit never changes throughout the entire movie. So when he sees Andy and his friends laughing to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, such as, you know, <laughs> heads being partially cut off and faces being cut off, he uh, grabs a knife and excitedly says, tries to like, think he will make them laugh too. They don't laugh about that. Uh-huh. But the violence kind of gets in the Chucky's head from there. And so when Andy's made sad by his cat and by his uh, mom's new boyfriend, Chucky takes matters into his own hands. And from there, you get the Child's Play slasher movie of old with uh, some clever new twists. Uh-huh. Do I say clever? Hmm. What is my opinion on this movie? What is your opinion on this movie? It's really, really fucking fun. It's really fun. Um, it's not particularly good. It is, doesn't ever take itself seriously, though, which is smart. Which is good, yeah. It, it is, rests in just being dumb, mm-hmm. really stupid. The gore effects are sparse, but when they happen... They're good. They're great. There's like two Rube Goldberg style kills that are really heavily done. And another one where um, a Caslin has an Uber system, but it's self-driving cars, <laughs> which seems silly, but it's just all for the purpose yeah, yeah, of yeah. Chucky making an, a poor old lady be stuck in this car while it's driving around a parking lot. Uh huh. Cool. All right, yeah. Um, other deaths include a man getting uh, stuck in a watermelon patch. Uh, after his leg violently breaks, because this is Andy's, uh, Karen's boyfriend, who's secretly married and oh. has abused Andy. Um, not really abused, but just acted like a shit. Mm-hmm. Um, then his head gets, uh, he basically gets scalped completely uh, by a lawnmower, an uh, edger sort of thing. And then <laughs> Chucky presents Andy a gif of the man's face on a watermelon, leading to a great, like, long gag of. It, it has a lot of it. It has a lot of like it feelings where it's like a group of kids like freaking uh-huh. out about like, what the fuck do we do about Chucky? Like yeah. this is a killer doll. What do we do about it? And so they wrap the <laughs> watermelon head in a doll in a uh, uh, gift wrap uh, because Mike Norris, Detective Mike Norris, played by Brian Terry Henry, who's doing a really good Atlanta thing here. He's really good. All the performances in this are really solid. Mm-hmm. Um, they wrap a gift and they try to sneak out, but. Mom catches them, and he has to pretend that he's giving the gift to Brian Terry Henry's mom, but he can't. She can't open it to a birthday, and so there's like this Chekhov's gun of a watermelon with a face on it wrapped in a gift wrap, and they have to do something about it. And um, it leads just to a really fun end. Uh, the Buddy Two dolls coming over. Um, the the Buddy doll that they have, the, the Chucky doll, can't connect to the cloud because it's, it's malfunctioning. Uh-huh. Um, it's fixed by a pervy janitor who is Ooh. basically sawed in half at some point. Uh, it gets his legs sawed off. Really cool, cool gore effects in that, too. Um, and at the launch of the Buddy 2 uh-huh. uh, <laughs> doll, Chucky takes over all the Buddy 2 dolls. And the Buddy 2 dolls are a variety of dolls, including giant teddy bears and whatnot. And giant teddy bears... In this shopping center, because it ends in the shopping center, mm-hmm. just run around attacking customers and eating them. Uh, a man gets stabbed in the throat by Chucky while he's wearing a giant sort of buddy doll head, takes mm-hmm. off the buddy doll head, and it proceeds to gush blood onto a screaming little girl's face. <laughs> this movie is fucking hilarious. Like, it's fun. It knows what it is. Like, you're not going to do 
there's like light little leprechaun references, but you're not gonna do Texas Chainsaw Massacre two being the gateway to make Chucky into Chucky mm-hmm. without knowing what you're doing. And this movie yeah. just rests in the fact of we're a really stupid 1980s slasher remake. We're not gonna try to redo the wheel. Like the the conceit of Chucky not being this dick serial killer, but this guy like this robot who really just is trying to function by its main protocol of making this guy, kid his best friend mm-hmm. and then when it rejects him being like you're gonna be my friend fuck you you know like, you motherfucker <laughs> like it literally at some like Hamill and Hamill's not doing like a Joker voice Hamill's actually doing something completely new he's like doing this really kind of like, light hi Andy uh-huh. sort of voice and eventually he goes like you don't want to be happy and so I'm just gonna make you sad because that will make you happy so he's like I'm just gonna kill everyone you love <laughs> and it's just clever like that it's I don't want to say clever it's it's so when you're so st- when you know you're stupid and you know you're just a fun dumb slasher remake when you're recreating the random lightning flashes that sporadically happen like they did in the original child's play mm-hmm. and you're not recreating the kills you know but you're doing something new it's fun and it's just a fun 90 minutes if you are a fan of slasher movies this is great it's not trying to be fucking halloween which is trying to like be smart or clever yeah you know people try to say like this is like oh a clever comment like some commentary on technology no it's not this movie is literally just like hey you know it'd be cool if 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 this doll if chucky could control drones and, and make it drive into a guy's throat and his basically almost get decapitated that'd mm-hmm. be really awesome yeah, also, the same guy that got stabbed in the throat, he's doing okay, he stands up, and then <laughs> Aubrey Plaza pushes Brian Terry Henry out of the way, and the thing just literally goes into this, this guy just suffers, like, three deaths. <laughs> like, it's, it's making references to, like, things like Evil Dead, and just, like, it's, yeah. it's just resting in this, but it's not over. It's just resting in this goofy, well, dumb, that, 80s slasher. That's always been the problem with all of these new horror remake things, is that, like, there's so much... They put so much weight on top of everything that they're doing um, that it just kind of can't be fun. Like, yeah. Pet Cemetery is no fun. Pet no. Cemetery stinks. And what's funny, too, is, like, the parts where you see, like, Chucky sad about things or Chucky, like, fucking up in the beginning, because this movie's not taking itself seriously, you kind of buy into, like, because you're able to suspend your belief so much and how stupid it is and how much it's not assuming, like, it's serious, you actually kind of buy into that emotion more. Mm-hmm. You know, you buy into, like, yeah, I can accept the fact that this <laughs> doll that was made homicidal basically by its by some dude. Well, think about it, too, because back in 1980, was it 88, 88 the yeah. original one? Like, Cabbage Patch Kids were, like, the fucking thing. Like, every and the big kid thing. that grew up in the 80s had a, had a like, a life, not a life size, but, like, a very big baby doll to, you and, know, hang around. And the entire idea of the 88 original is kind of like making a joke about, like, the satanic panic of the time. Sure. You know? Like, making, it's, it's making light of that. And this is just making kind of light of, like, the technology. It's not making light. Of, it's, it's using, it uses the, the background of something stupid, like technological fear, to kind of, like, just create something stupid. But, no, I mean, that's the thing. So, like, it would be this, it's, like, the same thing. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, so people don't. There are no more... People don't have... I mean, I'm sure someone has Cabbage Patch dolls, but they're not like a craze anymore. You know what I mean? We, we've gotten over our general fear of Satan just kind of... Well, maybe not everybody. Did you read that Good Omens thing that like this Christian group is... They wrote to, to Netflix. Netflix yeah. is canceling it immediately. <laughs> Amazon Prime, however, going to air yeah, They're going to keep going. Um, the, uh, the idea that they kind of updated it with new, you know, albeit ridiculous, terrors is is a good idea. You know what I mean? The idea that, like, 
something. The reason they couldn't stop him is because he's not attached to the cloud anymore. Is a funny idea. Yeah. And it's like a smart idea because that's like a real thing. Like, oh, no, no. He's not attached to the cloud. What are we going to do? Um, yeah, that's good. I mean, I might actually go see that on your recommendation. I would say it's a video one for you, I think. But I think you'll at least re- respect how stupid it's being. It's a movie pass one. And it's not I like. Say. If I can yeah. get a movie yeah, pass. Yeah, exactly. Um, if you have like the, the Cinemark Movie Clubs thing or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I spent $12 on it, and I don't regret it. It was It's short, but I had fun with it. So now you texted me at, like, 7... Yeah, it ended up being 7 people total in that theater. Oh my God. So it's, it's not good. Oh, I thought I mean, it was going to be I think, bigger. I think it'll still make, like, $10 million. And I don't think this movie cost a lot. Well, I just figured with the remake of Aladdin, like, I figured there's a parallel there. <laughs> it would be, like, the same kind of... I, I think Toy Story might be making the $10, million, $10 billion this weekend. Or, like, predicting that it's going to make $200 million. But anyways... Um, we talked before. I wasn't big on Halloween. Like I liked it. I think mm. it's a good slasher movie. I don't think it's a good follow up. This actually this works in the same stupid child's play universe. It exists like a long like it, it doesn't try to redo it. it. It exists kind of like as a parallel to it. It's, that's what's smart about that. Is there a place for Jennifer Tilly in the sequel? No, I think this movie's <laughs> this movie's definitely like not trying to be. The Dan, Don Mancini child play. It's trying to just be its own thing. Mm-hmm. It literally could have taken out like the child's play thing and been its, you know, existed on its own. And just called it like Buddy or yeah. something. And then people would have been like, this is just a child's play remake, basically. And it's like, well, yeah, but, but you know, we don't want to just call ourselves child's play, but we did. And they need to get those, they need to get those IP yeah. dollars. But it's not a slight. It's not a slight to like the, the Don Mancini things, which are still good. Like the Don, like the Curse of Chucky, Cold Chucky are still fun, uh, the new ones, but. A TV series I'll watch, but uh, this is this is if you like slashers, this is this is a good time. They're cool. in fucking Pet Cemetery. Well, yeah, everything is better than Pet Cemetery. Pet Cemetery. You know what? It's a bummer. Even a Star Is Born is buried in Pet Cemetery. Oh yeah, yeah like, oh yeah. yeah, and I'm you know I'm happy for those two now that all the tabloids seem to say that they're together. Actually, that no, that movie ruined his relationship. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> that, that makes me smile. <laughs> God, um, we really shit on Bradley Cooper. Or Bradley Cooper. Lawrence Kasdan just probably laughing as he's listening to this podcast he's right like, now. Take that, Bradley Cooper. Yeah, fuck you, Bradley Cooper. <laughs> and he's gonna be sad later that we didn't talk about him. Um, he's happy you got mentioned. On the subject of being sad, Mario. On the subject of being sad, the other movie that we want to talk about this week is the. Came out on Friday, last Friday, uh, on, June eleventh. Yeah. June eleventh on, uh, on Netflix. It is the Martin Scorsese directed um, doc drama, documentary, documentary. I mean, it's whatever. a documentary meets documentary. It's trying to do you know what that. Um, it's it's basically doing well, a lot of like Ronaldo and Claire was supposed to be. We'll get there. Um, it's the Rolling Thunder Review, uh, a Bob Dylan story. The idea was to put a tour up, and we should be playing 20,000 seats, but instead it wanted all these small venues. We're really running short of time. Want to introduce Bob Dylan? Boy, sure hope he gets to Boston on time. Where have you been? The tour was a catastrophe. Where have you been? It wasn't a success. Not if you measure success in terms of profit. The nation was so divided. 
so they embarked on a journey through America. The second Martin Scorsese, Bob Dylan movie. I never saw No Direction Home. Well, we're going to get there. Okay. Um, this movie details sort of the events leading up to and uh, the subsequent tour that Bob Dylan dubbed the Rolling Thunder Review. It is his second tour post-motorcycle accident tour hiatus. So he got into a motorcycle accident. He took eight years off from playing live. He played um, a tour with the band. And then he put together this kind of all-star review featuring Joan Baez. Does Martin Scorsese say something like only like like three bands total? Because he just makes documentaries about like these just three these, these couple of bands. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, he made a George, he made a George Harrison one too. Mm. Um, Was George Harrison any, any part of the band? No, 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 no. He wasn't part of the band. No. But maybe I think he probably liked the band. Um, <laughs> I'm surprised, actually, he didn't find a way to just kind of stick him into one of the pointless montages that are in here. But um, it, it he puts to, Bob Dylan puts together this this all star review show with uh, Ramblin' Jack Elliott and Joan Baez, and um, you know Allen Ginsberg is out there reciting poetry, and then eventually they pick up. I Joni never Mitchell knew Allen Ginsberg looks so much like David Cross. Oh, it's perfect. Yeah, I never realized that. That was like a, that was perfect casting for that for that film. That Did, was um, yeah. They, David Graham Cross has played. He's played Alan Ginsberg before. Yeah. Oh, the two people perfect. that most recently played Alan Ginsberg are um, Daniel Radcliffe and Kill Your Idols and David mm. Cross. Um, I know jack shit about Alan Ginsberg. <laughs> this is like my one exposure. I never read Hal. Oh well, so that's I mean, we'll and we'll get there. Um, basically, I feel like we have divergent opinions on this. Yeah. Well, because. All right, so we'll just... You have an so emotional aspect to this. It, I have... It documents this tour in the sense where that it shows them traveling around doing stuff. It has a couple of scenes of, of Dylan driving a bus. They're on a bus. They say at various times that they're in different locations. Um, and they play shows. They play different songs from shows, and he's wearing different clothes. That's how you know it's, it's like on a tour. It's not a travelogue. It's just kind of like an... Um, compendium of of moments and events from the Rolling Thunder Review tour. Um, I am not... I didn't understand this movie, and I didn't, I didn't like this movie. Which is odd, because this movie was made for me. I think. I... No Direction Home was almost on my list. Okay? The Volume 5 of the Bootleg series that came out, like, 20 years ago... Um, that documented this. So Bob Dylan has famously released this thing called the Bootleg Series. It's like these huge, um, you know, uh, like compendiums of moments of Dylan's life, like specific shows or specific themes that he was tackling, whatever. Volume 5 is the Rolling Thunder Review, and if we had to do this podcast with records, that would be like in my top 30 pivotal records. You know what I mean? Um I didn't need to be introduced to Scarlett Rivera or, like, I didn't find Mick Ronson's presence interesting. Like, I was listening to one podcast today. They were talking about it. He was like, what's Mick Ronson doing there? Mick Ronson was, like, um, one of the Spiders from Mars, one of David David Bowie's guitarist players. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm a Dylan. You know, and Baez, Dylan that guy. stuff is good. That stuff's engaging. I think so. I think, so that's what, I think parts of this movie are great 
like some of the concert footage is fucking like, let's, amazing. Let's talk about that, by the way. Did you? I listened to this on the head with headphones, uh-huh. like in my because I watch everything on Xbox. Uh huh. I mean, some film purists will get angry about that, but it's just fucking it's on TV. But so I plug it in, and like the sound design of those concert things is fucking great. Oh, it's tremendous! It's fantastic. Like yeah, the yeah. concert sound design on this is tremendous. Like if you're looking for great capturing of sound. And, and concert performances. Like, when he does Hurricane, like, the full performance of Hurricane is just fucking awesome. Right. And this is... I think part of my thing is that they've... So some of those performances have... have one of the things I was disappointed in is that, like, I wanted more new performances. Some of those performances I've already heard before. I know them, like, the back of my hand. Like, the performance of Simple Twist of Fate is on that record, um, is on the Bootleg Series Volume 5, like, that exact performance, and I... I can sing it right now, like all like the little weird vocal inflections that are different from the original one. Um, <clears throat> but like the performance of Isis is fucking amazing. The performance of, like you said, the Hurricane is amazing. Um, one more cup of coffee is not like my favorite song, but he kills it. Some of that rehearsal footage is absolutely stunning. Is is the is like a band. If you are a musician, that is your ideal rehearsal setting. Just like a bunch of people standing around a room, no microphones, just singing to each other, and you can apparently hear everything, and it's great. The Joni Mitchell performance with Joni Mitchell and um, Roger McGinn and Bob Dylan just sitting there, and she's performing, teaching them how to play Coyote, is an amazing performance. But then, all of that stuff is great. All the Joan Baez stuff is great because Dylan and Baez have an emotional connection. What the hell is all the other stuff doing in there, Mario? I have a, I have a theory. What is it doing? I have a theory, and this is why this movie works for me and why I really enjoy it. And I usually... We've talked about this. I don't like... Can we call this a concert? Concert doc? We call this... I don't think you can. Okay. This... It starts out with, with Dylan talking about, like... What's it about? It means nothing, and it's like I came from nothing. So hold like, on, I just want to interrupt you. It doesn't start with that. It starts, well, it starts with a with, pointless yeah, political yeah. montage. Yeah, yeah, yeah about yeah, like true, you know, oh, we're in America. Blah, 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 blah. Okay. Yeah. But you know, he's like talking about like, I wasn't even. It's just rambling kind of thoughts, and it eventually leads into like the ending where it shows like all the things he's done throughout his career, all the performances he's had yeah. throughout his career. I see this, and I think you're gonna call me out. But you're going to vehemently disagree. As an old man trying to recollect things and, and the, the fallibility of memory of one event that he considers insignificant, but trying to take pieces of it mm-hmm. and, and, and how falsifiable a lot of that is. Um, you know, for example, like the, the, the two, the three main prominent like fake aspects of this. You know, the, the filmmaker, mm-hmm. the, 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 the judgmental kind of European filmmaker that taught him how to smoke the cigarette the European way, that, uh, that uh, Van Dorp who kind of yeah, triculates yeah. through all of it, or the Sharon Stone part. Um, you know, having this model beauty queen who, in this moment who kind of like connected to him. Like, kind of like you take I mean, fragments of the world. that was a great story that or, didn't exist. Or using Michael Murphy, reprising, you know, his, his Jack Tanner from the Altman movie. Uh, what was that? Uh, Tanner 88? Yeah. Uh, re, you know, reprising that, you know, to me, this felt like a person who's trying to recollect something that happened. He says, you know, what the fuck do I know? It happened 40 years ago. Mm-hmm. So an old man who's, who's lived this life, lived a lot of things, recollecting moments. But then the moments that truly punch you, like, like him and Joan Baez talking, or like kind of Patty Smith's rambling kind of... Yeah, the Archer Zone. Yeah, it's know, fantastic. That, that stuff's great. Um, 
you know, that, uh, or Roger McGuinn's kind of real infatuation with, with Joni Mitchell, like the fact mm. that he's leaning in on her, like those moments of like real personal connection, those things, mm-hmm. like he, like are pinned tight. Right. And I like that. To I me, like it too. To, that's what this movie is about to me, is about reminiscence at the end. A man yeah. at the end of, near the end of, who feels, who knows he's near the end of his journey, Remembering something that people hail as this like huge important moment and him going like, Yeah, it was a thing and like fuck it wasn't matter. And like even though probably that's he does think it matters. But what matters is right. the, well, the pinpoint moment. And so here's where I'll and I don't I agree with you and I think that's like a really like a good take of what is supposed to be happening here. Here's where I where I will push back though, while still agreeing with you. No. <laughs> no pushback. In my house I bought the pivotal film tower. Dylan famously kind of doesn't care about this stuff like he really probably doesn't care about the rolling thunder review it is it is he would argue that he's playing better now than like he ever played oh and i think that's fair and i think that's why like okay so the performances are are there because like it's great to have those concert moments and people are not going to stick around without them Mm -hmm. but the things that matter truly in it are those moments of like the personal connection i think but I don't know. I, I don't know Dylan well, too is, much, and like maybe that just feels like it'd be more of a Dylan thing, like given his history of like oh, civil rights yeah. and whatnot. But those personal moments of personal connection, like the part where they're just fucking crushing Ginsburg beneath the heel, going like nobody's gonna stick around and listen to you talk for two minutes, bud. Yeah, yeah. And eventually cutting him out. Like those moments to me seem like something that he'd want to have focused on. The the personal connections, the relationships he made with the people, like the the focus on him driving the bus. You know, those interpersonal moments that are a thing that matter beyond the scope of this big grand performance. Well, here's, I mean, but I think, and, yes. and especially, and I think like, especially showing like all the performances he's done, he's like, this little thing doesn't necessarily matter given the scope of like, this is my life. But what matters and, is these moments. And I think that's what happened at the end there. Um, and I think that would be a very Dylan to kind of, it is very Dylan to say, like oh I'm gonna make I'm gonna I'm gonna let Martin Scorsese make a documentary about the Rolling Thunder review which everybody loves, and for Di- for Dylan to be like but I'm gonna really fuck with it, I'm gonna dub in, you know this guy's voice I think he's like an Argentine like performance artist that's playing him, um, that the director or the filmmaker uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna dub in his voice in like the stock footage that um, Howard Alk filmed like in real time you know at the time who was like dylan's you know photographer cinematographer guy who just kind of followed dylan around and took a bunch of photos you know did a bunch of movies with dylan um you know the sharon stone thing like in they're both well they're both from um yeah they're both from new york so martin van hasselberg he's a performance art like duo from the kipper kids um, I think he might have even been. I think he, he's married to Bette Midler. Bette Midler, yeah. Which yeah. even like that's why they kind of show Bette Midler in that one part. Well, and that's and like the, 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 Sh- the Sharon Stone stuff, where like I don't even think some of those things are Sharon Stone. Like I think it's just like, they, they had a just, lot of digital. I think they're just blonde tattoo. girls, yeah, like standing next to Dylan. They're just like, oh look, Sharon Stone. And like this, a couple times, it's young Sharon Stone. It's just digital. It's just or it's yeah. just her like alone. Yeah, it's just a picture of Sharon Stone wearing like a kiss thing. That's super. All that stuff is super Dylan. Um, and part of me is totally okay with it. You know what I mean? Part of that, part of this movie aligns perfectly to Dylan's autobiography, um, Chronicles, Volume 1, which only one has ever come out, and doesn't detail his life. It details um, 
had the making of three specific records. It's, you know, um, or like early in his life and then him making this record, Oh Mercy, which nobody really like cares about. And then him making, um, I think it's Time Out of Mind, but I, I might be wrong about that. I'm pretty sure it's Time Out of Mind. But everyone, you could just be saying words. To, I, lo- I know I like Bob Dylan music. I don't know. A but lot everyone's just background. kind. Of, but everyone got kind of mad. Like, what is this? Like, why is this what he's chosen to present as his autobiography? We don't care about this stuff. Let's hear more. Let's, we want a seven thousand page document that details your entire existence from beginning to end. We don't want these like snapshots of these moments that you seem to care about that we don't really care about. That's so Dylan. Here's where I will... Here's the thing, though, that is kind of weird. Scorsese has pulled this shit before. So, in The Last Waltz, which we will talk about much later, the, you know, documentary that he made about the band. Um, I'm going to be honest. The funny thing about The Last Waltz, for a good 15, 20 years, just because of how little I know uh-huh. about music, I always thought it was about the Rolling Stones. Oh, really? And they're not They're not there. There's no the one from the Rolling Stones there at all. Um... <laughs> They, he kind of did this faux interview bullshit there too, where Robbie Robertson, who everybody like hates, um, just because he's like a control freak and he kind of broke up the band because he decided like now would be a good time to break up the band because we've been doing this for a while and like it would mean the real Jeff would, Mangum situation. It would be good for our yeah, kind of it would be good for our career to never do this anymore, even though we're gonna release an album after this, not just of this concert. But a new record we've been working on. But we're not going to play any more live shows. Whatever. Um, so Robbie Robertson is like, they're interviewing Robbie Robertson. But he's just sitting there, like, narrating, like, the history of the band. And all the other guys of the band are just high as fucking shit. Just nodding off, being like, yeah, okay. And Robbie Robertson's like, and then we said this. And then, and then nobody else is doing anything, you know what I mean? It's just bullshit. But the state, the stuff that's happening on the fucking stage is the most real shit ever. It's, I mean, even though that's a manipulation too. Because why is Neil Diamond singing a song with the fucking band? Nobody knows. Oh, because he was working on a record with Robbie Robertson at the time. Like, that's why he's there. But it's all, it's like all this weird manipulation. But there, in that context, he lets the music dictate how you're going to feel about this. I don't think he does that here. I feel like they're trying really hard to... They're pushing an angle. And maybe it's just because of the era that we're living in. All of this politics shit is fucking for garbage. And I don't think that is for... To fuck with our heads. I think that's just a mistake. Yeah, I think no, that's like just the bicentennial like a bad stuff choice. Is, is weird. Like the... Nixon talk about the bicentennial, like like kind of like throwing in the Watergate thing, and like Ford taking it over, even though the years don't like match up there with with the tour. That was that was odd, and I right. don't know what the point was there, and like except to <clears throat> maybe underline like the the thing I took from it to kind of work into my thesis was just like this didn't matter nearly as much to Dylan to even remember right. what year it was. You are one you are one hundred percent right about that, one hundred percent. But I also think doing that stuff clouds it doing that stuff clouds it it also it's weird that they chose to do that stuff instead of focus on so like they're like oh dylan got in a car accident he didn't tour from 1966 to 1974 and then he did this and then he did the rolling stone review they also left out like the two two specifically relating to this tour which were blood on the tracks and desire 
like that a lot of the songs like were culled from those two records um like which are like blood on the tracks is one of the greatest records of all time like they don't mention anything about it like but do you they, think that's do you think that's the point maybe no i think they just wanted to make a movie about this one thing i think if you were right which i mean if, like if which is a right. which is a major criticism like cuz speaking about uh, Scorsese's what was the what was his Dylan or what was his uh, Harrison documentary called? Um, Living in the Material World. Like everyone's criticism that was like it's three hours, but it's a bio like entire biography of it. So it deals with his entire life span, right? Um, I I've never seen it, but a lot of the criticism about that were that and not the fact that like you know the best sort of bio documentaries focusing in on, on a biography of a, of a current person is just a snapshot of a certain part of the life. And this is 100% like just trying to be that snap. So maybe, I don't know, right. maybe that's and, like a weird meta commentary. But I think, so like the Bogdanovich four-hour Tom Petty documentary, I think could suffer from the same thing, except that you have a, in Tom Petty, you have a, in, in most of the Heartbreakers and stuff, you have a really honest human. Mm. You have a guy who's like not trying to fuck with your head. He's just answering questions and talking about rock and roll. You know what I mean? That's all he's doing. It's weird. It is weird to me that at 78 years old, or which is, I think, how old Dylan is, that he's still really uncomfortable with, like, his past. Or what his relationship to his past is. I got and Shine so a needs... Light and The Last Waltz mixed up. Well, they're both... They actually look a lot alike. Um, you know, they have some of the same kind of I don't know how I mixed it up, because on. they're 30 years separated. Um, <laughs> sorry. Um... I mean, I, I just think that it's not just, just kind of, just kind of a Dylan thing, though, isn't it? But still, like, still, like, just get over it. Or don't do anything. Or just make... Maybe like, that's Ryan how he you make a documentary. Yeah, he has fun by making Victoria's Secret commercials and Christmas records that are only available at, like, low-end retail stores. And, he like, likes money, too. <laughs> he does must like money. Um, but it just, it seemed so The weird. heroin's not going to buy itself. It seemed, no, he's, there's no way he's doing heroin. You don't think so anymore? I don't. I don't think so. I don't know if he ever did heroin. Wasn't there that part in No Direction Home where he's doing heroin with a uh, Lennon in the back of the car? I don't think so. Well, I mean, I'm, maybe I'm mixing it up with somebody else. It's possible, but I don't. Somebody else. I don't. It's it's possible. I'm more comfortable because like all the D.A. Penny Baker stuff, like Don't Look Back, um, um, it's cool because Dylan was being crushed by the media. The media desired. The media required him to have all the answers to life in like the mid '60s, and he was like, "I don't want to do any of that stuff. I literally just want to play, Hey, Mr. Tambourine Man, for you again. That's all I want to fucking do. And you want me to solve all the world's problems." Um, by this time, though, no one's asking Dylan for anything. No one even fucking cares about Bob Dylan. You know what I mean? Like, I care about him. But like, I also kind of don't care. I haven't bought like the last three Dylan records because I don't give a shit. You know what I mean? Mm. Like, good for good for Dylan. I saw him in concert. It was a bunch of times. It's fun, but I don't care. You know what I mean? If Dylan died tomorrow, I wouldn't be like, oh, all the stuff he must have had going on in his life that we're not going to hear anymore. I've been like, that guy lived an awesome fucking life, and I would give his ghost a high five, and then I would move on. His forest ghost. Yeah. Of course, I, have to, I mean, out. if I have to, to, if I'm gonna touch it, be hanging out with Mark Hamill's Chucky, fourth coast. You think that's where Charles Play Two is going? I hope so. <laughs> Force Chucky, but um, 
No, I don't know. But I, I think I, I guess I guess as a person who's not a fan of you, I envy you. I actually envy your ability to just watch this as a movie. I watched it as a provocation and was provoked. Well, now you see how I watch like slasher movies and action movies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. My slasher movie is concert is concert films, and when they're done badly or strangely, it pisses me off. You know, I'm just like, oh, this looks like an old man being old. Yeah, no. Remember an old stuff. I wish, I wish I could feel just old man Dylan and be happy with it. I'm scrunching my face up that, into a is that, is that the title? Is that the title of the episode? I wish I could feel old man Dylan and be happy about it? <laughs> no, I don't think so. You be can make one. it if you want it to be. be a good one. Okay. Okay. I guess we'll be uh, right back with our list. 57. I'll be recording this a week later, guys. <laughs> you know what number it is. Uh, welcome back. Uh, my number 57 this week is um, attached to my number 56 in a way. We won't talk about that right now. Um, at 57, we f- finally get to my friend Charlie Kaufman. Good friends. He's sitting right here. Yeah. He's, we're not going to let him talk. But he is here, just so you know. You hear a muffled voice, muffled cry from the corner. It's Charlie. Um, it is the 2002 film adaptation. Susan, we would really like to option this. You want to make it into a movie? I want to know what it feels like to care about something passionately. John LaRoche is a tall guy, sharply handsome. The book has no story. There's no story. Make one up. Okay, we open with LaRoche. No, we open at the beginning of time. Okay, we open with LaRoche. Hey! He's a white man. We open on Charlie Kaufman. Fat, bald, ugly, paces. I've written myself into my screenplay. That's kind of weird, huh? Uh, adaptation tells a story. God damn it. Damn it. <laughs> um, adaptation is about, essentially, Charlie Kaufman's... It's about telling a story. It's about telling a story. It's about... Argumentatively, it is. <laughs> Charlie Kaufman's attempts to adapt Susan Orlean's... Um, book The Orchid Thief. Have you ever read that, by the way? I've not read The Orchid Thief because I found it really boring. So I've read the original article that The Orchid Thief was then expanded into a, like a longer the, book the form. The New article? Or yeah, whatever. the New Yorker article. Um, and that was really good and really funny and had like just the right amount of like backstory about orchids and, and Florida Seminoles and like um, Florida Native American law and all this other stuff. Um, and then the book kind of just balloons it up to, you know, 200 pages or whatever, and I just couldn't... I always I imagined Orchid Thief. I never read it either, but at the reception I've read from it and everything reminds me... Uh, and just, just like her prose from, mm-hmm. from that um, reminds me a lot of Chad Harbick's Art of Fielding, where it's just, oh, he writes really well, or they write really well, and like they have a strong structure and strong pose, but then... Just keep going. Well, she could be really funny at times. Like, I just read her... Because I was doing a library sciences class, I read um, her new book that just came out, like, uh, the library book, um, about libraries. And that was more interesting. And it was done in the same way. Like, very digressive into these long passages about, like, the history of libraries or the history of this person in this library and blah, blah, blah. Um, 
But I like libraries, so I was interested in that stuff. I don't really give a shit about orchids or Florida, for that matter. Um, or Susan Orlean. Um, so I, 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 I... Art of Fielding really stunk. I didn't read it. So it was bad. I don't know. Um, Remember when everyone lost their mind over the Art of Fielding? Like, what year was year? that? 2011? This is the blue, the blue hardcover with like the the like the cursive Man, writing. Yeah, yeah, I know. I didn't. Yeah, I guess I did. People freaked out about that, and they freaked out of that book. Freaked out about that book called um, the Netherlands, because I think they were post. I don't remember the Netherlands. I think they were post nine um, eleven books. Like they are specifically post nine eleven books. Or the Netherlands was, and I don't remember. Maybe the Art of Fielding was also. I don't remember. No, um, that, but good. I'm glad you decided to take us down this art of fielding, <laughs> this art of fielding tunnel. Um, but oh, um, so what are we talking about? Oh, art of fielding. Oh, uh, the orchid thief. Um, so yeah. So in this 2002. Spike, did I mention Spike Jones directed it? Yeah, so the Spike Jones directed it. It's the movie that they did together after being John Malkovich. Um, which is a pretty good movie. Um, you got uh, Nicolas Cage. Pretty, pretty good. Pretty good. Nicolas Cage as Charlie Kaufman, also doubling as Charlie Kaufman's non-existent twin brother, non-existent in real life twin brother Donald Kaufman, who actually got writing credit on, like official writing credit on this film, even though he doesn't exist. Um... Meryl Streep plays Susan Orlean. We'll talk about her in a little bit. Chris Cooper. Got, yeah, Donald Kaufman did get nominated for the Oscar. Yep. Uh, Chris Cooper won, wins the Oscar um, as John LaRoche. Um, Kara Seymour, Brian Cox plays Ro- uh, Robert McKee humorously. Uh, you get an early Tilda Swinton. Um, a great post-office space, Ron Livingston, telling uh, Charlie Kaufman that he would fuck certain women in his office in the ass. <laughs> without provocation or anything um yeah you know and Maggie Gyllenhaal is in here and also Judy Greer and another completely thankless Judy Greer performance um which I think is a separate podcast that someone should do one day just about just Judy the, Greer <laughs> the sad career of Judy Greer that was a good rhyme um she survived in Halloween. She'd come back in the sequel. Oh, well, Judy Greer is fucking great. I love when Judy Greer is in stuff. They just never give her enough to do in anything. Um, she needs to be kind of a badass in the Halloween movie. She's got that going for her. You do? Yeah. I mean, I guess there's that. But I, do you honestly think they're going to like do Halloween 2 centered around Judy Greer? No, but she'll be in it. Right. But they'll give she'll her... Probably, she'll probably... It'll be like Ant-Man 2, where all of a sudden... probably die. Yeah. <laughs> They'll probably use her as like the person that can die. So she didn't die in Ant Man and the Wasp, but she just was in it for like five seconds, and she's like, "Oh, you, whatever his name is, you don't shouldn't do that." Scott Lang. Scott Lang. We just call him Paul Rudd. Yeah. I want to call him Charlie because I'm talking about Charlie Kaufman. You, Paul Rudd, you stop doing those things. Um, this movie's on my list because I think it's excellent. Um, I think it's a really um kind of profound meditation on um, creativity and um, like kind of marrying creativity to, to passion and mar- marrying your art to yourself. Um, but it came at a really interesting time for me and in that I really, I was entertained. I entertained for a couple of years becoming a screenwriter. Like that was the thing that I was going to do 
after high school. I had all the brochures and things for the Vancouver Film School. Um, and I had written like two screenplays that were really long um, and very autobiographical um, and that were just just really terrible, really terrible things. Um, but I wrote them and they existed and it was a thing that I thought that I really wanted to do. Um, and then this, remember that, did you ever read that graphic novel Blankets? No. So it's, it's, I think it's, he's a Canadian. It's a really thick graphic novel. If you can look up who wrote it. Um, <clears throat> but it's about like a guy who, you, you know, he's just a guy. He has all typical guy Craig problems. Craig Thompson. Craig Thompson. Yes, yes, yes. I, I kept wanting to say Scott Thompson, but I was like, that's the guy from Kids in the Hall. It's not Scott Thompson. It's somebody else. Um. And at one point in the in the book, he is writing like a story about um, working in a bookstore, and the story has all of these very specific things about working in a bookstore. And at one point, like another character is in it, tells him that nobody would care about this except for people that work in bookstores. You know what I mean? It's all about like the stupid, shitty things that happens working like a retail job, but not just kind of in a general idea and like in a very specific way. And my screenplays were. <laughs> Are super heavy on that. It was essentially just my a dramatized version of my life working in the record store or working in the bookstore or going to Southern for you know a semester, um, or you know what what I felt like to kind of listen to certain music at like a specific time of day or at a specific time of year. All stuff that I picked up from from movies. Feelings that I had I had be made been made aware of from movies I had seen in like 1999, 2000. There, like there was a lot of fucking shit in my head at the time, um, and adaptation seemed like the perfect kind of synthesis of what I was dealing with. Um, you know, there's that one part in adaptation where like you know Meryl Streep is kind of you know looking. She just walked away from her dinner party where like her husband is talking about like. John LaRoche and like what a weird character he is and um she just she has she's just very sad and like confused looking and she like there's a voiceover and she's just like I wanted to want something as much as people wanted these plants talking about orchids um and I've kind of felt that way for a while um but I think it's a kind of perfect distillation of everything I've always wanted to feel when making something like you want you always, ex I, I, maybe, you know, if, maybe you're different, maybe other people are different. I, when I'm making something, I always just expect, like, this is going to go really well, and this is going to be the exact perfect thing um, that I've wanted to do, and this is going to make me feel X. Um, like I said to a bunch of people before, like, one of the problems that I have with, you know, a musician, like, with playing live music is that every time I go on stage I expect that when I get off stage my life will be different somehow and inevitably it isn't and that's why I feel like I've never played a good show because after that show even if it was good I'm still just the same guy you know I'm going to go home and do the same thing I'm going to wake up in the morning and everything's going to be the same and I'll you know get a text message from Chris or JP and they'll be like that was a good show and then I'll be like yeah that was a good show and then that's the end of the show forever you know what I mean even when we opened like for Yola Tango, and apparently we were really good, even though I don't remember because I was totally hammered. And we stole beers. And we from stole Yola, beers from, from Yola, Yola Tango. Tango. Um, the only show I could get after that was like an eleven o'clock second act at the Outer Space, just playing for drunks until they told us to leave. You know what I mean? Um, and that's I feel like all of that shit is in here. 
like all of that like just the want and the desire to be your best the best version of yourself the most fully realized version of yourself um and it, i think it's really interesting that you know so charlie kaufman wants to you know he's adapting the orchid thief and he kept keeps keep saying over and over again i just want to make this movie about flowers i want to make a movie about orchids i don't want to have a plot i don't want to get these two people together i just want to make a movie about flowers um, ironically, though, the movie that he just wants to make about flowers, he wants to start at the birth of existence. It's just about flowers, but we're going to start it at the Big Bang. You know what I mean? Um, oh, Terrence Malick. Yeah. Well, I mean, I love the fact that Terrence Malick totally did that. And seriously. Yeah. And there's... And, there's, and this one has kind and of like... you loved it. I, I fucking... I love it. I love every second of that movie. I've, I've shown... I'm the only person who's... I'm the only person who's shown that movie to their kids. <laughs> like, listen, you gotta see something. You gotta give me a half hour of your life, and I'm gonna show you something. Don't worry about Sean Penn. <laughs> Don't worry about Sean. Just focus on the dinosaurs. Um, and all, all your daughter did was become a huge Sean Penn fan after that? Yeah. She sought out bad boys? We've watched The Pledge like a million times. <laughs> it's a really good movie. I like The Pledge, yeah. yeah it's a really good movie. Um, sip a beer. But I think part of that is that you have these really you have these really excellent representations of people who are all feeling that exact same thing. So um, Charlie Kaufman, Susan Orlean, and John LaRoche are all kind of in the same boat together. And they're all expertly played. Um, they all got they all got nominated for Oscars. Chris Cooper won. Um, Meryl Streep probably should have won this year. This is one of the award, Oscars that Meryl Streep probably should have won. Um, you can argue that Nick Cage probably should have won also. Um, I often wonder what Nick Cage's life would have been like. If it would have been better or worse if he had won for this movie. If he had, would be making different movie choices if he was a two-time Oscar winner. Instead of just the one-time Oscar winner. No, doesn't wouldn't pay the taxes. <laughs> yeah, it, would, it wouldn't pay for his divorce settlements and things like that either. Um, so it, I'm trying to think of what even wins that year. So that's Adrian Brody. Catherine Zeta-Jones wins for Chicago. Yeah, Beano, Meryl Streep. Julianne Moore was pretty good in the hours, but from that Meryl Streep, mm-hmm. I'd say yeah. Um, um, I still, I'm okay with Adrian Brody. I'm okay I with do Adrian like Brody. Daniel Day Lewis in Gangs of New York, but it's not one of his best ones. Michael Caine's really good in Quiet American. Mm-hmm. But that's not really. A, it's, that's a solid. That's a solid category. No, no, it's year. an interesting year, and, and supporting actor is also pretty. Like um, they get three out of three out of five of those are all right. Chris Cooper, Walken, and Ed Harris are all. Yeah, they nominate the wrong person for Road to Perdition. Yeah, yeah. It's like here's Jude Law. Not going to nominate him for this. He doesn't really say very much. But he carries himself so well in that movie. Any, anyway. Um... So you have you have this this these beautiful these three really beautiful representations of of that feeling in this movie, to the point where and this is hot take for the day, I really don't like Meryl Streep. I actually find Meryl Streep overall not super. I assume not in this movie, but I love her. It's the thing I yeah. love her in this movie. I find Meryl Streep's presence in movies and in anything to be distracting to the point of kind of negating the whole film. Um, I think the problem I have with Meryl Streep, and, and I would admit with this, the thing I do love most about this film is his performances. It, the meta-narrative overall doesn't really speak to me. 
I, I a lot of Charlie Kaufman stuff, and this is gonna be a continuing problem with us. That entire narrative, like meta narrative of identity mm-hmm. and kind of like stripping away identity, and like this is once again kind of like well, doing I mean, the same yeah. thing for me that that being John Malkovich does. Um, in terms, you know, like in this one, he's creating a duality of of what I think he wants to be the self. You know, like he wants to be the socially adept. You know. Uh, kind of ideologue in, in the sense not socially adept ideologue but socially adept you know but lacking that ideologue and that like, you can't have yeah, that right you know he's got like the social anxiety comes with being the ideologue well um being like that like, yeah it's, it's just I, I that doesn't that stuff for me doesn't re, doesn't respond i don't respond to that i love being john malkovich um but i just i don't like much else from charlie kaufman um i, I stopped sedecity in new york when I started it before, so I'll have to give it another chance when, if I have to watch it again. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but like, it, I, I find like Eternal Sunshine of Spotless Mind and like massively pretentious um, for me. Uh, and it's just maybe one of those things where it's just he's he's not a person who speaks to me. Like mm-hmm. it just it just does not connect on a level. Um, but with that being said, like the performances in this are, are incredibly solid. I think the issue. That I kind of have the same issue with like Meryl Streep in a lot of ways it is um, in a lot of her performances is there's like a, a certain quarter of veil or pretense that she has in her performances where there's kind of like a certain kind of stiff backness mm. as it were to it like like you know she's doing a role you know she's doing a character yeah. it's 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 this template of Meryl Streep with this extra kind of layer thrown on of of the character. And that's, I would agree that this is pulled back. Like, this feels like an actual person. Well, the two movies This that... and River Wild are the two performances where I'm like, oh, oh she yeah. feels like she's playing River Wild. I like River Wild, yeah. Yeah. Um, her acting against Rapids is, is really, really works. Um, the two movies I like her, uh, the two movies I think that she's, like, performing in that I really like her in are this and, like, Sophie's Choice. And I think oh, it's Sophie, yes. But the interesting thing about that is that they're just two broken women. You know what I mean? Mm. Um, her character boils down to literally just that. And I think she does... She, she is not a broken woman in the River Wild, though. No, she's not. But she's really good in the River Wild. Because she's... Because... That's fun. That's just fun. It's just awesome. Fun. Yeah. And Davis Strathairn is the top of his game there. You got a 28-year-old John C. Riley. Yeah. You got like a 24-year-old Benjamin Bratt. You got the kid from Jurassic Park. Mm-hmm. Who still in? Who was in Bohemian Rhapsody? Apparently, yeah, I, I saw that. I forgot. I was like Timmy. <laughs> I didn't Good recognize work. when I saw Bohemian Rhapsody that that was him. No, I didn't either. But and I looked it up like on Wikipedia. And I, I was, was looking like, at River Wild because I was thinking of of what next action year we should do. Uh huh. So I was thinking ninety four. Oh, I like River Wild. Um, That's a good movie. And I was like, well, River Wild have to be one of them. But River Wild is also ridiculous. Oh, it is, but it's fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Fun. Um, it's one of the few what Curtis Han- Curtis Hansen directed that I think I don't know yeah. I don't think I've ever like bothered to look at who directed I think the Curtis River Hansen Wild. directed that who who just died I didn't realize Curtis Hansen died Curtis Hansen died yeah I think it's Curtis Hansen um, but no and I, I agree that like and um, yeah Curtis Hansen, Curtis Hansen directed it he did die in 2016 um, this this feels natural like that scene where she's you know she she's high. <laughs> You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. And just laying there, it's it's fun and like just like the like bringing her foot up to her like her face. <laughs> well, and all you know? that, and all that, um, the, even past the ridiculousness of 
like the ending, whatever the ending is. Like, and you know, you can have your own interpretations of the ending. I, I suppose that's the point. Um, is that look how cloudy this beer is? I love that. Oh, it's, and if you poured it out, it's very yellow. It's like nice. it's really beautiful. Um, she's just lost. You know what I mean? She plays a character who's totally lost her way, and she's sad about it. But she's also angry about it, and she's not angry at Charlie Kaufman. She's 100% just angry at herself for, like, being this way. She's angry at LaRoche for kind of making her this way. Um, she's And there's there's that really beautiful scene when he takes her into the, when he takes her into the swamp to see, um, like, the ghost orchid. And then, you know, they don't find it for a while, and she's all pissed off and, like, dirty and tired. And then they do finally find one, and she's like, it's just a flower. Yeah. Um... Like, she just wants, she just craves that kind of connection to something. Um, and she's just, a, she's just putting it on LaRoche. And that's, it's one of the really, it's, if you do the, the homework on, on this movie and read, like, uh, maybe even I should have read the book, but um, if you read the article and then you, if you go online and read, like, the original screenplay for this that Charlie Kaufman wrote, um, it's really fascinating how he's developed all of these things into this film. So there's like a part in the book or on the article where he mentions that LaRoche feels there's like this, there's this orchid specifically that grows on trees and it's not a parasite because it doesn't use the energy from the tree. It uses the energy from like the sun and the wind and like the moisture around it to, to grow. It just grows on a tree. And he says he, he often feels like, um, like, like he's the tree, and then there's these people that are just, you know, sitting on him to grow, to like make themselves into more, to more than they are. And um, I don't know, I don't remember him saying that ve- like specifically in the movie, um, but I think he does actually say that. But it's all, even if he didn't say it, it's all there from an image standpoint, and it's all there from an emotion standpoint. So this is a really interesting Spike Jones film. It's interesting that this movie comes from Spike Jones who I think, if you read the script again, there's a bunch of really gimmicky, kind of like very Charlie Kaufman-esque things in here. Like, there's one part in the script that, it's obviously not in the movie, where, like, John LaRoche is in, like, his store in the past, and there's all these customers asking him all these questions because people just kind of wanted to talk to him and ask him questions about things. Um, And Spike Jones took it out because I think Spike Jones didn't want to make this move... He wanted to make this a movie that had a big, huge gimmick in it without any gimmicks. I don't know if that makes any sense because he wanted the emotions to be real. So in something like being John Malkovich, being John Malkovich sometimes feels like a farce. You know what I mean? No, absolutely. Because it's the emotions aren't always real. The emotions are tied to this really ridiculous thing that you're seeing. Um, and so, like, one of the problems I've always had with being John Malkovich is like not Cameron Diaz's performance, but Cameron Diaz's character, where I don't her arc doesn't seem real to me. Um, but in this movie, I think all of these, all of these arcs, gimmicks or no gimmicks, are very emotionally real. Um, I th- and I think it's because they're all tied to art. They're all tied to making something. They're all tied to the idea of trying to tie yourself to something else. Um, and obviously, that really, that really speaks to me. Um, but I think the, one of the things, and I, one of the things that like just keeps me coming back to this movie over and over and over again is that. Um, like Streep's kind of um, presentation of those feelings, which are just so raw and honest and real and lovely. Um, 
that you just I just kind of I want more of it than like Meryl Streep with her fucking orchid drug you know what I mean I just want to fly down to Florida and like just kind of take some of it in because it's just it's just so great um, and I think it's because I also dislike her performance so many of her other performances that I feel like I need to go have this one um, as often as I can even in movies that I like like I like it's funny because I like two out of the three female performances in like the lead performances in The Hours you know, which is another movie from this year that Meryl Streep was in. Um, but I really don't like Meryl Streep's in it. Because even though Meryl Streep in that movie is supposed to be a broken woman, she's never the right kind of of broken. She's like Meryl Streep broken. This seems like real broken. You know what I mean? This seems like real yearning and real um, desire for something more. Where in the hours it seems like they were just like, well, the script says you cry here in front of Jeff Daniels. So... Why don't you go ahead and do that, and yeah. then we'll just film that, and it'll just be Meryl Streep crying, and or like in August Osage County, which is the fucking worst. And she's like, "No, so you're just gonna be bitter and angry at everybody," and then it's just it. So just do that. Do all of the angry, bitter Meryl Streep that you want, and we'll just film it. It's like, okay, it's fine, whatever. I don't know. No, I, that's the. I don't know. I, I disagree, kind of, on the take with being John Malkovich. I actually really like Cameron Diaz in that role. I, I like I think, her until they want her to do, to do like the turn. But I think she she kind of sells it. I don't think it's a matter of selling. I just don't buy the turn. I, th- I just think I think Spike Jones knows how to direct actors, mm. and like that's that's his thing. Like, like a lot of people like sell his. I don't want. to... Not kookiness, but but the, I think the, they do sell the kookiness. Not the yeah. coo- I don't want to say kookiness has the correct term. I would say more the. I, mean, I guess it is kookiness in the, in the end. The eclecticness. Like, the eclecticness, yeah, is the better term. Um, like with where the wild things are and whatnot. Oh yeah, uh, which is another uh, that movie was. I almost had like the entire Spike Jones oeuvre on my list, but not her. Her would have been like a far on the outside because I'm not like a big her fan. But her still is also like. He knows how to direct the shit out of his actors. He's getting like a decent Chris Pratt performance in there. Hey. Who does that? Hey. Everybody. Chris Pratt's a genius. <laughs> but he, he just knows. And that's, I think, what works here, too, is he, he knows how to work relationships between mm-hmm. actors. He knows how to make the, the discussion and, and, and the, the, the inner, react, inner relationships between people work. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what works mostly for me in this movie is, is those inner relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. Unless you have anything else, we can move on. No. Uh, to the to the hard work at hand. No. <laughs> okay, we'll be right back with Mario's fifty-seven. A long, long time ago, in the year twenty eighteen, all the way back to episode eighty-nine. When you were a fresh-faced 26-year-old, 36-year-old Jesus, <laughs> jumped ahead along in one year. I was a 36-year-old Jesus. And I was a, a young lad of 32. We talked about my proclivity and love and a certain actor whom I proclaimed to be one of the best actors of all time and will still stand by. And said that we would talk about a film of his in the far future. Mm-hmm. The future is now. Is that? I think that's a saying from somewhere. It might be a WWE thing saying. If it is, I apologize. 
the company to fuck itself. My number 57 is 1950, 1948's Laurence Olivier directed starring Hamlet. Hamlet, the world's most famous play. Now brought to the screen with filmic mastery. The camera capturing the superb artistry of the finest actors of our time as they portray a story of a man's torment, his indecision, his love, his rage and his revenge as foul crimes are burnt and purged away. Do, do, do I do a plot description of Hamlet? Is that a, a complete? No, no, you do. You need to give a very detailed one. A very specific moment-to-moment plot description of what happens in Hamlet. So, like, Hamlet is back from school because his dad is dead and a ghost and chilling out on the roof and people are really fucking freaked out about it and Hamlet's like, I'm going to go talk to this ghost. And people are like, listen, Hamlet, that ghost could lead you off like in the madness or off the side of a cliff and then you could die and that wouldn't be good. And Hamlet's like, no, I'm going to talk to that ghost. And that ghost is like, yo, your uncle killed me. He poured some shit in my ear. Yeah. Got some, got some stuff in my ear. I died. Now he's banging my wife, who's your mom. I was banging her constantly, and now I can't bang her because I'm dead. You got to do something about this. And Hamlet's like, well, I don't know. I'm kind of a angsty young guy. Maybe I should just kill myself. No, I'm not going to kill myself, but I'm going to kill my ex-lover's dad. Take that, ex-lover's <laughs> dad. You didn't do it on purpose. Yeah. It just happened. You know, when you're hiding behind curtains, you're going to get killed. For the record, he would have stabbed Polonius in the face. Oh, absolutely. In this, in, in this, in this movie. And then, and then he, he, he just shit-talks his ex-girlfriend. And, you know, eventually... Yep. He's like, he's like, I'm gonna kill my kill this goddamn uncle. Wait, he's praying. Don't want to send him to heaven, even though I kind of like already don't necessarily believe in that. That soliloquy, that part never made sense to me. The, the entire like religion of this play never made sense to me. And then eventually he's like, well, I'm gonna go fight this guy in a duel. Oh, no, poison, I'm poison. All oh, the mom's poison. My mom's poison. Oh, I'm gonna, gonna stab my uncle to death now. Do, Every, everyone's dead. I'm gonna jump Good off the nights. top rope of this. That last last scene actually filmed ever in that because they they thought for sure Lawrence Olivier was going to injure himself. Um, oh really? He did not injure himself. He was fine, but the stunt man he landed on broke his teeth. <laughs> broke his teeth? Yeah. The uh, the client, <laughs> like he just landed. He just like launched himself on him, and the guy like smashed his teeth. <laughs> I mean, it's funny now because the guy's been dead for years. They're all all these people have been dead forever. Yeah. Not all of them. Christopher Lee just died. He doesn't have any lines in this. He wasn't as lucky as Peter Cushing. Yeah, but that's that's a that's Hamlet. Except in this Hamlet, there's these two unlucky friends of Hamlet. They're not in this. No, no, they saved that for Gary Oldman and Tim Roth, and Tom Stoppard a few decades later. Mm-hmm. Um, This is it follows the you know, that general story of Hamlet. That is, by the way, uh, high school kids who are listening to us, that's all you need to know about Hamlet. You can now pass your you know sophomore English test on the book. Yeah, no, you totally can. I think you did a perfectly good job. Yeah. Uh, it was but, by Bill Bill Shakespeare. 
Um, he, he was known as uh, Billy Shakes. Billy Shakes, yeah. Billy Shakes down in the down at the old globe. <laughs> also, everyone saw that role in Emmerich movie. Bill, William Shakespeare didn't write any of the plays. Everyone knows this. Yeah. No. It was the, what is it, the Earl of Shaftesbury or something? Or, I don't know. Uh, Joseph Fiennes. I think that's all I took. That's all I took from all my William Shakespeare stuff is Joseph Fiennes did something. Speaking of which, Shakespeare in Love fucking sucks. Yeah, that movie hasn't aged well. Not because it has there's anything wrong with it, just because it stinks and people forget that it exists. No, you know what I'm gonna say? I'm gonna say this the hot take really quick. It has nothing to do with anything. I'm gonna say, Tom Stoppard, kind of garbo, kind of garbage. I don't know enough about Tom Stoppard to like make a definitive garbage or non-garbage, uh, or garbo or non-garbo. <laughs> I will say that I do know a decent amount about Tom Stoppard. And Rosencrantz Gilnster, Dead Sucks. Real Inspector Hound Sucks. Um, Shakespeare in Love Sucks. Siegel. His adaptation of Siegel sucks. So you suck, Tom Stoppard. Bite me. I think he's dead. No, he's not dead. He's not dead? No, he's... He's 81. Oh, yeah. He's kicking so, around. There you go, Tom Stoppard. Fight Mario. Yeah, Real Inspector Hound really sucks, because Real Inspector Hound is just, you know, an old satire on the old, like, British murder mystery. But, uh-huh. it's, I believe, am I right in saying this? Uh, I am absolutely correct in saying this? No, I'm not. But Murder by Death does, does okay, so I thought Real Inspector Hound might have came out later. Real Inspector Hound comes out first, but Murder by Death does everything Real Inspector Hound tries to do mm-hmm. significantly better. And I performed Real Inspector Hound in high school and elevated it because I couldn't do a British accent. And so instead, I said, uh, I changed the word Canadian to, I came from an old Canadian province. Canadian? It's Canadian. Killed, killed the house. They loved it. Killed it. Well, people had much... People in Minden, Nevada, had a had a low threshold for comedy. Yeah, I was gonna say threshold's a good word. Um, this is for me. Just I'm always a a fan of of Shakespeare done on screen. I always have a soft spot for it, mm-hmm. even lowly kind of done. Um, Shakespeare, like even like the Titus uh, variation by Julie. I think it's Julie, Julie Taymor. Yeah. Um, even well, Titus Andronicus is. It has nothing to do with Shakespeare. She just had some ideas of images she wanted to put on screen. And have you <laughs> and read Titus? Have them. you read Titus Yeah, yeah, yeah. Easily for me, my favorite. This is this is clearly going to be a take that pisses people off. My favorite Shakespeare. But if you've listened to this podcast, the most unsurprising thing you could probably have ever heard me say: the fact that the super gory horror. Yeah, yeah. William Shakespeare play is my favorite by far. No, um, it's um. I mean, that's I'll, uh, Titus is is almost like an, uh, a different thing. Yeah, because it's gotten it's a <laughs> it, nightmare. She would have done that movie with whatever like you know um, script or or you know if somebody had given her the Meet Joe Black script, she would have done Titus. She would have done that. She was in a version of that. Yeah, would <laughs> Brad Pitt's death would have been real weird. She was like Tarzan, but with. Shakespeare instead of, you know, Jennifer Lopez. But I always, um, I always love a good Shakespeare adaptation. You know, I, I even suffered through 
Mel Gibson's variation of Hamlet, mm-hmm. the Ethan Hawke version of those two. You know, the things that aren't good. Mm-hmm. The uh, the early two thousands um, Macbeth set in a fast food place. I can't I, uh, can't remember what it's called right now. Mm. Um, I think Matthew Lillard might be in it. Oh dear God! I, you know, Boz Lerman's really shitty Romeo and Juliet. The really shitty 1970s Romeo and Juliet. Mm. You know, I, I appreciate a good, a good Shakespeare. This is the second of, of the Shakespeare's on my list. Um, and, and the last one. You don't have uh, one of the other Olivier, like the Henrys? Henry V almost showed up on it, but it doesn't have much of an impact. Um, Brana's Henry V was also a contender. Mm-hmm. But it just most because Saint Chris, he just sells the shit out of Saint Christmas Day speech. But my issue typically with Shakespeare on screen and even Shakespeare on stage is the fact that there is a degree um, to which the performers don't know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. That the language is just spoken. The, the lines are kind of just read at face value. Mm-hmm. There isn't a depth or, or a cell to, to what's being said. So, so you don't, you know, Shakespeare in general is, is, is known, is done well by driving a motorcycle really fast down a highway. <laughs> that was an Ethan Hawke movie. Um, but it's, it's sold by, by emoting the lines. You know, there, there, there can be done flatly. It, it doesn't, endow anything uh and this everyone is on point just because olivier fucking knew what he was doing olivier was like if a person like read their lines at face value olivier probably would have probably would have done what he does yeah to 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 climb at the end in in terms of repeatedly stabbing them in the chest um and so this is just like the the i mean it excises a lot of the dialogue, you know, you get a four and a half, half hour, yeah. you get a four and a half hour long play cut down to two and a half, two, barely over two and a half hours. It's about two and a half hours. Excising three main characters and, and several soliloquies. Yeah. Um, excising characters who I don't think really serve a point. Well, I they do. I mean, they do. They, ser- they, they serve a political, the, the point of the political aspect of it, but like no, going for that. Continue psycholo- and then we're going to talk about it. Okay. I think going for that psychological, like this is, 100 uh, percent focus in the psychological elements and i disagree but continue okay um but there's also things he adds in especially during the uh you know the act five scene two i, I find it i find really interesting in that i i hate to use the word elevates because it's not elevating it um but modernizes it in an interesting way and and adds an interesting kind of film twist to it and and there's a lot of that there like the earlier on before i even get to that um when hamlet first sees the ghost of his father it feels like the camera is taken off of a steady camera and all like it loses focus and it kind of like moves shakily in on him i like the ghost scenes yeah i like the ghost voiceover too that was kind of smartly done yeah, but I like mean, I don't know camera. how much they did it based on like the limitations of what they could do, but I, I think it sounds spooky and cool. But there's obvious deliberate attempts at like the mise en scene and like what they're doing with that, or like when it, the camera's kind of flowing up the very clear models, but just to give a sense of scope to leading to that to be or not to be soliloquy. Like, it gives a sense of scope and it gives a sense of height and it gives a sense of 
just place. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a couple things that happen in that final act that I find interesting. Uh-huh. The first being, Osiric almost seems like he's complicit in what's going on. That he knows that Laertes and Claudius are plotting the murder. Osiric, you know, that, that nice little Grand Peter Moff, Cushing. Grand Moff Tarkin, yeah. Yeah, Peter Cushing sitting there. Also, interesting fun fact, this is the first of like 24 times that Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee would both be foes throughout the Hammer Dracula films uh, were on screen together. Huh. That was fun. Yeah. I like both of those guys. Um, but, he, you know, after, like Hamlet shit, shits, on, shits on poor Osiric a lot. Osiric just has a lot of money, gets to be in the court, and Hamlet's like, oh, it's cold, huh? And Osiric's like, yeah, and he's like, no, it's hot. And Osiric's like, oh, this guy's a prince, maybe I have to agree with him, because fuck you, Hamlet, you angsty little bitch. Mm-hmm. Um, bitch, and, uh, angsty little dick, sorry, uh-huh. jerk. But here... <laughs> you went through the range stream of, of con- yeah. Stream of consciousness, Mario, trying to be politically correct. Um, here, Osiric is sitting there with he says, like, do I strike him now? You know, with the poison. Uh-huh. You know, in, in the play, that's not there. But this little, like, maybe slight revenge. Maybe, maybe he knows what's going on. I like that. Okay. I like that a lot. A lot? I like that a lot. Because uh, I, think, I think Hamlet's kind of a douchebag. Okay. And I like the fact that Osiric maybe gets a one over on him. Uh-huh. Maybe gets that on him. Okay. And Gertrude... Has this long look at the cup, the poison cup. Uh-huh. You know, play kind of considers Gertrude just be like this kind of like big dummy who kind of doesn't realize the world is crumbling in around her. She, it's written, and, and you know what? It's serving the point, the purpose. Like, like I'm not criticizing the play itself, but it's a good modernization to have Gertrude stare at that cup for a while and stare away, then go like, oh, that cup is fucked, you know? There's, there's a knowing about what's going on there. There's a sudden kind of like clapping, clicking realization. Mm-hmm. And she drinks the cup, and the way she says, let me wipe your brow, the Hamlet, mm-hmm. like it's kind of like a goodbye. Mm-hmm. I love that. And, it, and, and, and to me, that's, that's where the psychological element comes in. Like, there's some criticism about this, that there's, there's a sexuality between the relationship between Gertrude and Hamlet. Mm-hmm. I don't necessarily agree with that. I just because... kind of... Lawrence Olivier was 13 years older than the woman who played his mother. Yeah, <laughs> that could play a big role in it. He probably was banging Because she too. kissed him on the mouth three times <laughs> before he went into that first soliloquy scene. But I don't see a sexuality. I just see a closeness in that relationship there. I just see... Maybe... No, I don't, think there's a, yeah. I don't think there's an overt. The 68 version, the Tony Richardson version, like played up like the mm. incest point a lot but um this is not i don't think you know so so there's like this this a closeness there that is then kind of amplified where she kind of like realizes not realizes what's happening but kind of like ha- like it gives a sense of when she finds out what's happening that she kind of sacrifices herself because she doesn't fucking her world just kind of imploded uh-huh. um and you know, when, when Olivier leaps on Claudius, you know, he's not just strikes him once dramatically. He fucking tears. Like, for 1948, he's tearing that guy apart. Like, there's two off-screen stabs and then a final actual on-screen stab, yeah. you know. 
and, and they're like Olivia's grunting through it. He broke the guy's the stuntman's teeth. Like there is a gutturalness to, to the hatred and vitriol there. It's not just like a you're dead now sort of thing from that a lot of like these classical performances of it do it. It's a man who's fucking eviscerating this guy he hates. Like there's a burden of the hatred. Mm-hmm. And you know everything before that, like like the like how well Olivier does the like to just go with the famous scene, like the two be or not to be, like like how that's actually sold as kind of a declaration of suicide, and like well, not really. What's it actually mean, and what's life in general mean, and like even though it's like archaic language, not really that, that itself is not super archaic, but even though it's it's unfamiliar language, like the emotive sense of it, and all of this is like emotive, mm-hmm. and I love this because it is so emotive that it's so. I think you could show this, and, and I would. That's why I argue psychological. I, maybe psychological is not the right term, but, but a motive. There, there's, there's, there's a depth to the emotion, and maybe at times it's unnatural. But there's, there's a, a, um, an element to the emotions that even a person who's who's not at a place to really get what's being said can get a sense of of the emotion that everyone's feeling. Yeah. There's, you know, like having Basil Sidney's kind of like first introduction be this kind of like semi-sarcastic introduction to hamlet that's kind of like not slithering villain but it's there's a sarcasm or like a, a snarkiness well, to what he's saying plays him drunk too which i think yeah, is yeah. odd which isn't like an odd choice yeah i wondered if he was drunk or just basil sydney was just slurring his well, <laughs> like, he, it's like, so interesting he threw the cup of, like he threw that cup away like he took a sip of it and then just like threw it and like somebody yeah, caught yeah. it and then he just was yeah i mean maybe he was just actually intoxicated he was slurring his words but it was I mean, like one of, our, one of our double podcast episodes i didn't catch a bunch of stuff that came out of his mouth like the, yeah during no, that it's... first scene because it was like I'm, he's tanked but it's just like a snarkiness and like an in, not necessarily indifference but like a real like yeah you can stay and we want you to stay but like do you need you know there there's definitely a clear establishment from the beginning that this guy's a prick you know? yeah and then what I think is clever too, though, is 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 that that question and, and the kind of teeter tailoring that that Olivier kind of does with his Hamlet also kind of makes Hamlet out to be somewhat of a prick. Like when he's doing that get you to the nunnery scene with Ophelia, like there's well, too much vitriol there, like too much of like a person who's a real asshole. But here's what I would say about that: is that that scene makes no sense because it's taken completely out of context. So that scene in the play is delivered post to be or not to be, and in this is just ham-fisted into the middle of just, like, something. He just, like, comes upon her and just starts yelling at her. And that's the thing. That's my wonder. That's the, I mean, I don't well, know so if this... it's, it's thrown in there, or if it's more a deliberate choice to show, like, Hamlet isn't the... Here's what I would say. Good old guy that he's supposed to be. Are you... not, not necessarily good old guy, but the... the Quasi anti-hero he's supposed to be. Are you done? Only because I want to make sure you're done. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, had uh, you present ideas, I'll, I'll right. I just, but before I start yeah, yeah, saying I think... stuff, I just want to make sure that you're like through like your initial. Yeah. Okay. I think my problem with this movie, and it deals directly with that scene, and with a lot of the cuts and a lot with of the, the yeah, a lot of the movement and stuff like that. As I'm, I don't get the sense that. Olivier knows not what the play is about. Because I think he probably knows what the play is about. I don't 
know what Olivier finds interesting about this play. I don't I don't know what draws him to it. I think from if you look at like the history of like this thing on film, just like the I'm, I'm sure there's there's a, apparently according to Wikipedia there's a Russian version, you know, that was filmed after this one. Um there's a couple of others that are kind of here and there, but if you just go to the main ones, like um like I mentioned the Tony Richardson one um which is which is okay. Um you know, it's very minimalist sets. Um, it's, you know, there's, they, they make cuts out of that too. Um, but there's, like I said, there's a lot of weird incestuous things in there. Um, but it's also like the sixties, you know what I mean? So I think the thing that's interesting about Tony Richardson is kind of like the ambiguity of like what's supposed to actually be happening inside, inside Hamlet, you know what I mean? Like the nature of these relationships, the, the psychological nature, like what, because there's no like stage direction or anything like that in in the play. It's just you know this person leaves, this person comes in. It's just a bunch of words on a on a page is de- like designated to certain people. Um, you know you have the Mel Gibson one, and clearly what draws Mel draws Mel Gibson to this material is like the martyr stuff. It, it, it aligns perfectly to like Mel Gibson's entire career was trying to do this type of stuff. You know what I mean? Like the Ethan Hawke version, there's an attitude to it. The Kenneth Branagh version, which is like the version that I prefer, there's <clears throat> uh, Branagh's clearly just in love with this play. That's why he films the whole fucking thing, um, and it because he's in love with the play. He is he plays Hamlet with like a real f- like um, like a percolating fire, like through the whole thing. You know what I mean? He's so it Branagh's manic. It starts not. from that first that first fucking soliloquy um and goes all the way until like they send him to england and he's you know he does that great end of that great soliloquy that they cut out of act four you know standing you know in front of the mountains just kind of yelling stuff um it just builds and builds and builds and builds and builds i will say this the brana version it was between the brana version and this for showing up on my list Mm um and there's there's certain things that the Brana version does I don't like in terms of its casting, like, like just like Robin Williams Osric is just doesn't know really what he's fucking doing. Billy Crystal isn't yeah, good yeah, as yeah. a grave digger, and it's like, like there's there's other parts I think Jack, like, Le- like Jack Derek, Lemon. Derek Jacobi has, um, Claudius is fucking oh great. Derek Jacobi is amazing yeah um, Kate Chris, Winslet's Ophelia is good yeah Winslet's Ophelia is yeah. great um. You know, but but there's other stuff with that that just there's people he kind of threw in there. I think like thinking like I need to do this in order well, they, for this movie to make money. Well, they just to do it, and I think he thought like this person's not gonna be. I don't have to worry about this person. You know what I mean? Like no one's gonna complain, but they did complain that like Osric is played by Robin Williams, but, but they did because it's weird and it's bad. Yeah, he doesn't know what he's doing. Um, I don't get the sense that Olivia ha- Olivier has any connection to this material. Like, from watching this movie. Because it doesn't make any sense. Like, because the stuff that he decided to take out doesn't make any sense. From a, just Even from a, just a soliloquy standpoint. We need that stuff to understand Hamlet better. I don't understand who this version of Hamlet is supposed to be. Like, it's just... He's just broody and sad. But then he's also, like, doing ye- a lot of yelling sometimes. And standing on things and, like, waving his arms around. Like, at the end of the play... But like, what happened to the play? Why? 
<laughs> why did he reduce the play and the stuff that happens in the play to just a kind of pantomime of you know the mouse trap and then end it with you know Claudius just kind of yelling I need give me some light um why I don't know why he did that because all the stuff that to me all the stuff that happens in the play that kind of like dynamic that push and pull of Hamlet kind of acknowledging that he's fucking with his uncle like while the play is happening is like really powerful like to kind of create this fric- create the friction between these two because in this movie the it's just the first scene and then they heard everything obviously that he said to Ophelia and they get the to a nunnery scene and then there's that scene and then he's just like well that's it I'm had it with this guy now we have to get a plot together to you know make sure we can do ex- you know we're going to we're going to plot against Hamlet now a little bit um there's all this weird stuff that's just kind of missing and it leads me to to the feeling that Olivia is just kind of delivering lines without any kind of real sense of why he's... De- like, what purpose they're serving in the movie. You know what I mean? Um, like, I don't know, why do you have him delivering any of his soliloquies, which is some of the greatest writing in the history of of the civilization... Next to Kevin Williamson's uh, screen... Sure, screen, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, the Matthew Lillard part when he's you know yelling and or the Jamie Kennedy yelling in the video star. No, Matthew Lillard. Going, my mom's this is so mad at me. Um, it's right there. Why is he delivering any of those soliloquies in voiceover? Who thought that was a good idea? The and I, first soliloquy sets up the whole. You have to have that first soliloquy to set up everything that comes after that, and he's just mumbling through it in a voiceover. No, why, I, I why? agree. What's the point? I agree. Of that? No, I, I agree with things like that. Um. I agree that the entire idea of doing that kind of introduction, that kind of like, you know, written introduction that, that Olivier did mm-hmm. was, was a nonsense. You know, that the, um, a man who, you know, I'm talking about the, I, yeah. I can't remember the lines from, but just like, just in case nobody knows what, what, you want to read it. Oh, that this too, too sullied flesh would melt, thaw, and resolve itself into a dew, or that everlasting had not fixed his cannon against self-slaughter. Oh, God, God, how weary, stale, flat, and unprofitable seem to me all the uses of this world. Fie aunt I, fie, tis an unweeded garden that grows to seed. That's not, that's not what I'm talking about. Well, that's the first one, but that's what I'm no, saying. But, no, I'm talking about his, um, his, his thing, the, the interpretation of the play where he talks about this is the tragedy of man who cannot make up his mind oh yeah yeah, yeah. that entire part's like nonsense like you don't need that you don't need well, olivier you don't need to explain what but it's also not hamlet is to people. but that's the thing it's also not so i mean i i don't i think this works least good i mean it doesn't work the least good because i think like the mel gibson one's silly the ethan hawk version's silly we like, got Kyle McLaughlin as Claudius, which is which is Kyle McLaughlin as anything is fine. Um, Leo Schreiber also is, is not a bad Laertes in no, that, no, but Leo not. Schreiber also just doesn't need to be in that. Movie. And I think Laertes is actually a really good. Julia Stiles is a terrible Ophelia, though. Julia Stiles is terrible at everything. Um, not even Save the Last Dance. Even Save the Last Dance. Yeah, because I didn't believe one. I'm jaded because that record movie came out when I was working at the record store, and a lot of people wanted it. No one knew it was going to be a big movie, and then it was a big movie, so they didn't print enough copies of the soundtrack. 
so we didn't have any to sell, and then all of a sudden we were just getting hundreds of copies of the Save the Last Dance soundtrack in. Was the soundtrack really noticeable? Yeah, it was a big deal. It was a real big deal. Save the Last Dance is a big movie. I remember it being a big movie. Um, what was I saying? You say this is the one that works the least well. Oh, because, for, and that's the thing, part of me thinks that what I'm responding to is the, the era. And part of me thinks what Laurence Olivier was responding to was the era of scholarship that Hamlet just happened to be in at that time. He number three on the Billboard 200. I'm telling you, it was a big... And that, which, in the, at, in the year 2000, would have been a lot of fucking records. Is, is it because of Pink? I don't know what the big song off of that was. I think it was just uh, people like the movie. Uh, Crazy um, by Casey and JoJo. And You by Lucy Pearl featuring Snoop Dogg and Q-Tip were the big singles mm. off of it. I Q-Tip. So, that is. It's from Tribe Called Quest. Um, I like that band. There you go. Q-Tip is in Tribe, oh. Tribe Called Quest. I don't know anybody. No, there you I go. Just, I just know the Tribe Called Quest. Now we can be band. friends again. Um... So uh, part of me thinks it's a scholarship thing. You know what I mean? Where, like, in the 40s, we were reading this play as this. In, like, the 60s, we were reading it as this. 60s politics came into play in the Tony Richardson thing. So, like, let's get some sex in there. Let's get some, like, weird sex in there. Let's get some freedom in there. Let's kind of, you know, test the ambiguity of this play. You know, um, the 90s were overly earnest. The 2000s were kind of like, let's just throw everything to the wind. And we can totally do a version of Hamlet and dress everyone in modern day clothes and have Ethan Hawke be Hamlet and all this other stuff. Well, that was late 90s. Also, but then you have Scotland PA. That comes out like two years later in 2001. That was the Macbeth at a fast food place. That oh, that's what that earlier. was? Okay. Um, but part of... So, like, one of the things that... Nietzsche said about... Oh, I thought Matthew Lillard... Matthew Lillard was apparently not in Scotland, PA. Who was in that? Who did you think was Matthew Lillard? Well, I, don't, I don't remember. Amy Smart's in it. Yeah, Amy Smart's all right. As, as one of the witches. Christopher Walken plays Macduff. That's pretty good. More Tierney's uh, Lady Macbeth. I like that. Who's Macbeth? Uh, James Legro. Oh, yeah, James Legro! James Legro! He's from Zodiac. Mm-hmm. He's always in everything. James the Girl is great. Um, Nietzsche said about Hamlet. You know, it's funny to think about if you do, do like you're reading about Hamlet. Like every like major thinker has like something to say about Hamlet. So like Kierkegaard had a ton to say about Hamlet. And Nietzsche had a bunch to say about Hamlet. He argued that I like Kierkegaard. I'm a Kierkegaard you do guy. Like Kierkegaard. Nietzsche argued that Hamlet doesn't think too much. He thinks too well. And so when well, like, there's like the entire sophist argument with Hamlet. Right, but. So in the beginning of this movie, when he's like, it's a story about someone who can't make up his mind. And he's like, well, no, he knows what he's supposed to do. But he's, he's, so, he's thinking is so clear on this stuff, and he can think his way around all of these things, that he's just not able to... He can, he can think through the, all the variables of every single thing that he's supposed to I be mean, doing. I mean, there's something that's kind of smartly excised, I guess, by Olivier in that sense, where... Uh, Hamlet says to Rosencrantz, like, um, uh, there is, like, no good and bad, but, like, thinking makes it so. Mm-hmm. Like that. Right? Mm-hmm. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. Well, there's a, there's a great, like, exchange in the, like, when he first, when Rosencrantz and Gildersman first show up. I think I marked it. I think I marked it. Get the book. book. I'm going to act one still. 
Oh yeah, so he's like, um, you know, this is so this is right after Rosencrantz and Guildenstern get there. It's Act Two, Scene Two, and he's just like, um, Act Two, Scene Two is also what I'm quoting. Yeah, when he's like, um, so shall my anticipation prevent your discovery and your secrecy to the king and queen, molt no feather. I have of late, but wherefore I know not lost my mirth, foregone all custom of exercises, and indeed it goes so heavily with my disposition that this goodly frame, the earth, seems to me a sterile promontory, the most excellent canopy, the air, look you, this brave o'erhanging firmament, this majestical roof fretted with golden fire, why, it appeareth nothing to me but a foul and pestilent congregation of vapors. What a piece of work is man, how noble in reason, how infinite in faculties, and form and moving, how express and admirable in action, how like an angel in apprehension, how like a god. The beauty of the world, a paragon of animals, and yet to me, what is this quintessence of dust? Man delights not me, nor woman neither, though by your smiling you seem to say so. I don't see how... Laurence Olivier can leave that out. Because don't we need that to understand, like, the nature of Hamlet's thinking about not just himself or the problem at hand, but that Hamlet's thinking about this stuff revolves around his thinking about the nature of existence? And so, like, which leads, you know, an act, the end of scene two soliloquy, which is one of my favorites, leads directly into all that stuff, um, you know, the I am a slave stuff leads into um, the to be or not to be thing. So it's not just about him and his general sadness about his dad being dead. It's about him and his relationship to, like, his existence and the fact that he exists at all and what it means to exist on this planet. Um, and Olivier, for some reason, has felt felt compelled to, t- <laughs> to take all that stuff out and just kind of act a bunch of, you know join together things, which is weird because it doesn't seem like those things have any more to do with anything else. Like, he just kind of... It seemed like he randomly picked a bunch of scenes to leave in the movie and then just got rid of the rest of them. Um, I don't know. It's just weird. I got a really weird... I, I've seen most of this movie before because I went through... When I went through my Hamlet phase, um, I was I was watching, a, like, all of these movies to try to find good ones. And... Um, Everyone says, like, this is the best one, but I think they just say it because, like, Laurence Olivier's in it, and Laurence Olivier was Hamlet is, like, a good thing. Um, but, and I guess, you know, maybe Kenneth Branagh overacts, and maybe no, I don't think there's, all the, I think... there's, a weird, there's some weirdness to it, but I just feel like there's, Laurence Olivier made a bunch of weird choices, and I... it's just, it's, stri- it's the, especially upon this most recent viewing, I was just like, I don't, I don't even understand who this Hamlet is supposed to be, or why he feels any of the way he's feeling, because he removed all the explanations for those feelings in here, and he also removed like the 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 tragedy out of it. Like, so that it, this has to be, this is only a tragedy in that Fortinbras comes in and reestablishes an order. He like sits on the throne and there's a king again and blah 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 blah. Like he just took that away, so it just ends with him dying and being like a, getting a soldier's send off. And then the cannon shooting, and that's it. And that's that's what's interesting is, is I agree to a sense uh, like a lot of stuff's excise that needs to be there from the philosophical standpoint, um, from the standpoint of of the deeper philosophical questions. But I like a Hamlet where everyone's a fucking asshole, 
and everyone's kind of a dick for no real reason, and everyone gets fucked over in the end, and it ends, and this is what that Hamlet is. And it's everyone knowing what they're doing. Like, all the actors are doing it well. Like, the Brana version works on a pure level, and Brana's a better, easily a better Hamlet than, to me, than um, Olivier was. I think Olivier's a better director in terms of the construction of the play, in terms of directing all of his actors to actually know what they're doing. Well, I would like to see Olivier do the whole thing. Would be, I mean, that would be really special for me. Would be to watch Olivier kind of go through this whole thing and build a character and not just kind of like stop and start and stop and start and yeah. stop and start. And now I'm here. Yeah, yeah. Um, and like I said, my problem with the, the Brown version with that is just like there's just people in there that don't work. But I think the stop and starting to me works in that sense is that the things that are exercised are these kind of like personal conflicts. You get kind of like the moodiness of. Like the the self conflict, the self agitation, like the Rosencrantz and Guildenstern stuff has a lot yeah, of like yeah. self reflection, a lot of like discussions. Like when the entire act two, like the act two scene two is just like a back and forth kind of discussion yeah. on the nature of man, and like where you know like Hamlet says you know men don't interest me sort of thing. Like like that the entire sense of like he's kind of not necessarily overthinking the problem; he's just thinking it through so fully, and you know. I think it's, it's Rosencrantz in that scene, right? Um, is, is saying, like, you know, you, there's other things you have to think about with this, or there's times where you have to shut off that the brain and, and mm. realize that that's not how men work, that you can't just bring the people in for the play <laughs> and do this, you know? Um, but but by excising that, it turns Hamlet more into just, like, this dick, this, like, this like guy, guy with a big swinging dick who needs to, like, avenge his dad. Yeah. And, and at, at the complete cost of everything, destroying everything. It but, changes the tone. This is not a good adaptation of Hamlet in the sense of this is not a fateful adaptation. This isn't – you get a sense of what the writing is and the language of, of parts of the play. But this is like an entirely different beast. This is about a person, a really immature kid who's really upset as – Yeah. <laughs> but he's trying to play – he's definitely trying to play 20. Yeah. Um, who's really pissed off his dad's dead. A mom who's like kind of fucking dis- wrecked and destroyed by everything, who's getting manipulated on all sides, but could still think for herself in the back of her head, still realizes, you know, what's yeah. going on. Another woman who's just completely wrecked by awful people around her, and and a world that just self implodes on itself, and 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 it's good. Like I'm glad they all di- they all die. Well, maybe not Gertrude. I'm sad about Gertrude dying and Ophelia dying, but like. You know, the fact that Claudius and Hamlet die is fucking good. Like, I like the fact in this that, like, these two guys deserve to die because they're so toxic. Like, yeah. this play presents, this movie presents them as completely toxic. Whereas, like, there's, you know, there, there's, there's, there's a sadness to it in, in the actual text. You know, the, 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 the loss of thought. Well, there's, the loss of introspection there's that comes with Hamlet. There's cosmic significance to, like, literally everything that Hamlet is, is doing. Yeah, exactly. But you reduce that and just make it two toxic dick swinging assholes die, and I like that. I like that a lot. Can I ask you why? Because for all of its, for all the introspection that Hamlet has in the in, in the text itself, mm-hmm. for all the thought and and the questions he asks. In the end, he's still overcome by his own emotional sense. And, like, that's the tragedy of it, right? Um, 
the, the sad part of it is 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 despite this being a kind of a great mind, a person who should have just been like, yeah, my dad's dead. Maybe I should go back to school because I can actually contribute a lot to the world. Like, and this has always been my interpretation of Hamlet. He fucking lets his pride and a sense of honor to like the self, like to the fam, not not necessarily to the family, just just a sense of honor to like, I don't want to say masculinity, but a sense of honor to the patronage. Uh-huh. Um, overwhelming. And and he, you know, plays this kitty little game with his dad, being still, not his dad, his uncle, these both being, like, really two people in, in the core of absolute power. Like, like, in the end of the day, these two have no real significant problems. Like, they... You know, Hamlet, his dad's dead. Sure, his dad was murdered, but he could let bygones be bygones with that in the sense of with or, or he could channel his frustration against Claudius or channel his, his revenge with Claudius without like fucking murdering a bunch of innocent people. Innocent not innocent well, uh, complicit in ignorance. The yeah. people around him he destroys are complicit in ignorance. You know? Um, well, I think he knows. I think he knows that. I think the problem. I think the thing that I and I think the thing I appreciate. One of the things I appreciate was about this is that and this is why uh, he's a big reason in, we could argue. I mean, this would be an entirely different podcast, but I think I just like. I, I think Hamlet's the better play in terms of its construction and what it offers, but I find vast amounts more enjoyment off of Macbeth because uh-huh. it it appeases me at a more guttural See, I think, level. I. I think that Macbeth is the more well-constructed play, and Hamlet is kind well, of... Well, well-constructed, I mean, maybe in terms of what it prevents ideologically, and, and, and the thoughts, and, and, and the scope no, of think, questions and, it brings, I, too. I, I think I agree with you. I think that Macbeth, for... My um, roommate's really angry about what we were just saying. No, I prefer Othello. Um, Runs upstairs. Lear! <laughs> fucking Lear! Why aren't you talking about Julius Caesar? Um... I think and we're like nobody's talking about Julius Caesar. I think that we might get some listeners if we talk about Julius Caesar because people would assume that we're doing an anti-Trump thing here. Um, <laughs> but I think Macbeth is Macbeth's intentions are are clear, and Macbeth as a character is very clear. We know who he is, we know what he's responding to, and we know why what happens to him ends up happening. Um, his inner thoughts are not as complicated as as Hamlet's if there is a character in Macbeth whose inner thoughts are like going in that direction it is Lady Macbeth oh absolutely but even she you never even see it but even she at a certain point it goes too far and she goes mad and you know that's the end of Lady Macbeth um she Hamlet she doesn't have any tides so she can't get the spot out she can't get the spot out um and it's in response to something real like so she actually is she actually killed that guy you know what I mean? She didn't put the knife in. Um, she didn't put the knife inside of him, but she put essentially the knife in Macbeth. Nice. Yeah, she put the knife in Macbeth's hand. Um, the blood is on her hands as much as it is on Mac- Macbeth's hands. That makes a lot. Of, that makes perfect maybe sense. even more so because right. she she is the facilitator. And of, she's of, the yeah. and she, she's she, clearly she, the smarter of the two. You know what I mean? He she put him up to doing something that he wasn't thinking about doing without her kind of like prodding him along and saying, you know what you should do is, is this thing. It's perfect boba. Um, you know, Hamlet's a little Hamlet's a little messier. You know, I was reading... Um, I always go to Bloom, and one of the reasons I go to Bloom is um, 
because he writes about Hamlet really passionately. Mm-hmm. He doesn't. He writes it, uh, you know, scholarly, and he's really smart about Hamlet. But he also just fucking loves Shakespeare, and he loves Hamlet. Not just like in a normal person way, like in a weird, crazy way. He's like obsessed with. He's obsessed with Hamlet and Falstaff. He's just obsessed with them. He loves them. Um, and I respond to that. I deeply respond to that passion. It's kind of one of the things that kind of I, I respond to in um, adaptation. Like he has found the thing just to tie these two things together. He has found the thing that he really loves, and it is Shakespeare, and it is motherfucking Hamlet. And he would say, not literally, not literally. But he was kind of arguing <laughs> that that's something you'd have to bring up because some people get the edible yeah, stuff from this. He was he argues that like one of the reasons that Hamlet put the play inside the play is um, as a kind of dig to, like, Ben Johnson and, like, some of, like, the rival stuff he was doing in another theater, but also because if he didn't kind of stop the play in the middle, that Hamlet was going to take over the play. Hamlet, the character, was going to take over the play and just destroy it. Like, the character was too big and too perfect and too... You're, t- you're talking about a dark half situation? We're going to have a dark half situation? We're going to have a dark half situation, <laughs> yeah. Oh, um, those, are, those are the worst. He... he he um, had a, a vision of Stephen King. A and crow was in his brain. Um, and he, so he put this play in there to just stop it. To stop Hamlet where he was. And to kind of like let the play breathe a little bit before Hamlet, you know, delivered. You know, just kind of went crazy. You know what I mean? Because if he didn't, he was just going to eat the play alive. Which makes a lot of sense. You know what I mean? Like the whole, all the best stuff in this play is just... Hamlet's going to talk for now, like, however many lines it is. And he's going to dig into, like, all the layers of his psyche and his feelings and his emotions. And he's going to come out the other end of it with this plan to do whatever. Um, and, I, I, and I think... And all that stuff is, like, contained within... The, within this play and it's just it's almost too much it's almost too much at times so that's why I think Macbeth is like is just tighter and it's more well constructed well, that's, that's what I mean. just, it, that's, that's, Macbeth almost seems perfect while this seems a mess but I, this mess really like this mess really like turns me on like I I also love Hamlet I love the character of Hamlet I love these soliloquies I love digging into these things with with I love kind of just reading them over and over and over again and like piecing, like well, that's, te- tearing the words apart. And I mean, stuff that's, like that. that's the point I was getting at. I, I think the reason I like this is because it reduces Hamlet. It, re- it is a reduction of Hamlet to be performed. Because I think Hamlet's too big to be performed mm. accurately. Well, and, there's and, arguments and that, that he I think Hamlet that too. needs to be. Hamlet's a book. Hamlet needs to be read, you know? Well, so um, there, I mean, there's, there's. And Macbeth. Macbeth is it can be performed with ease. Yeah, you can yeah. perform the entirety of Macbeth. Well, there's a bunch of scholarship that suggests that Hamlet or that Shakespeare understood that, like, after he wrote Hamlet, it wasn't ever going to be performed in its entirety again. That every director that did it or every company that did it would make their own version of like what this was supposed to be. I think Kenneth Branagh was like, "No, I'm doing no, it all," no. which is why one of the reasons that I love it because he was just like, "I, lo- I also love Hamlet. I'm doing the he whole actually, thing." He actually really fucking hates Shakespeare. It's funny it'd be great. Branagh's like, I. Fuck you, Shakespeare! I'm gonna do it. It's so funny because I was watching the I was watching the Branagh version like last year, and I fo- could follow it like the whole way because it's all there. I understand everything. There's a bunch of scenes in this movie where it's like, wait, wait, what? Like, when is this? When did the? Oh yeah, this is this is that. And then, but it's here. Like, what? what when? 
oh, well, why is this here? And like, I just had to kind of recalibrate myself, like, oh, now we're doing this? It's like, but what happened to that other thing? Oh, they took the other thing out. So wait, what's supposed to be happening here? It's like, oh, it's this. And just, I'm just, you know, I kept losing myself because there was like so much taken. There was, there was so much of that emotion taken out. And yeah, so absolutely. it just reduces it for me from an Olivier standpoint too, to just Olivier kind of just like walking around, like doing a lot of looking and just kind of, and then when he gets excited, he just goes crazy. And then he just, the next scene, he's just like, but do you, that's the one thing I always find interesting. Do you, do you take his, his craze has like craziness or do you take his craze as just immaturity? I always take it. Like everyone always argues that, that his, his manic behavior is, is insanity. I take it as immaturity. Has, you know, like, come pumping through his brain sort of situation, if that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, no, no, I get it. I, um, and I kind of... I That's think... also maybe a title for this. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> maybe is the operative word there. Come pumping through the brain. Come pumping through the brain. Um, I, I think it's kind of a little bit of both. Like, I don't think he knows what to do with himself anymore. He's kind of put himself into a position where, like, because he stabs Polonius, he literally can't do anything anymore. Like, so he's literally just spent the whole time before he stabbed Polonius thinking about what the hell he was going to do. And then stabbing Polonius kind of means, well, now, this has just cleared a bunch of stuff up for me, but I don't know what it is. You know what I mean? Like, I'm this person now, but I'm not 100% sure what that means to me. Um... It, so it strikes me those those last like sections of chapter four before the soliloquy, uh, or act four before the soliloquy, kind of strike me as just like a very confused like mania, um, where he can't go back, but he also can't go forward. So he's just gonna kind of go like from a mood perspective, he's just gonna go up, mm-hmm. um, and then he comes back in act five, and he's like a totally different person, um, which which the movie that were in question doesn't really address it all. He's just kind of like the same person. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's, I think it's a little bit of, of both things going on there. No, I just, I don't see the crazy. I see, I see, I mean, maybe it's just my interpretation of, of what Olivia is doing and what works for me. Well, I was like reading it this way makes it so much better in my mind. Well, I, just, I also don't think the madness is fair necessarily. Like, why would a guy who's so very specifically not mad, to the point where like he's having these conver- he's like having these deep conversations with himself, which are not presented as madness whatsoever. They're presented as like the height of rationalism mm. um, and reason. So the idea that he would just jump from like being completely sane to a fault to completely insane is unrealistic. So it's almost like his sanity just has no, it's kind of met its pinnacle. Like, and it just, you just kind of spinning his wheels until like he can get the fuck out of there. Yeah. Um, yeah. That makes sense. Does it? I don't, I don't know. I wish I was better at this stuff. No, but like, like from the Olivier aspect, that makes sense. Like, like what that's, yeah, I definitely there. think that Olivier was not interested in presenting him as mad in any way, shape, or form at all. Um, I think Olivier was generally interested in, in presenting him as in control. A, a Hamlet who was in control of every situation from beginning to end 
regardless of like what was happening to him, that he knew where he was going and what he was doing and um, what like the appropriate response to everything would be. And he felt that it was like appropriate. Mm. So like jumping off, you know, the, whatever that is, the steps. The top turnbuckle. Yeah. The top, the top turnbuckle onto his, his My uncle. God, he's broken in half. Seemed My like God. A, a perfect. Imagine if Jim Ross movie. had done some commentary over that. There's people in there. Don't go. Don't go. Do we agree that there's people in there is the greatest moment of Jim Ross's announcing career? Which was that from? When Mankind throws, like, who's in the dumpster? Mankind, oh, or, or no, is Mankind the, in the dumpster? No, 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 wait, is it, is it, no, 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 it would have been um, Mankind and Terry Funk, uh, maybe as Chainsaw Charlie versus New Age Outlaws. At WrestleMania. I don't think it was WrestleMania. I think it was like a Raw. And they were just... Mankind either was in a dumpster or I think it was Doink the Clown. And he threw somebody in a dumpster and then he pushed the dumpster off like a little stage, like the entrance stage. And Jim Ross the, the, Jim Ross the whole time was shouting, There's people in there! There's people! And literally the drop from like the top of the stage to the floor is like a foot. And Jim Ross is going crazy. No, okay, so... Um, Did you yeah, find it's, there's it's, people in there? Yeah, it's, it's, it's uh, New Age Outlaws locked Mick Foley and Terry Funk in a dumpster and pushed it off the stage. Ross, this is from Bleacher Report, Ross dragged Pathos into the odd surreal situation where he said, Human beings are in a dumpster! <laughs> is that WrestleMania? Uh, or was it just like a show? Uh, I can't remember. This should be... New Age Out the New Age Outlaws Terry Funk match um, should have been I, I'm almost positive that was that was no it was on a Raw it leads up to the WrestleMania match um, but it was on the February second nineteen ninety eight episode of Raw oh that's I mean that's right in the the spot where I was still vaguely paying attention to wrestling through my brother so yeah they do wrestle. In a dumpster match at WrestleMania 14. Well, we were obligated to watch wrestling every Monday for however long Raw was on for. It was just the one thing that was on TV. So I guess this is the end of the podcast. Yeah, because we, we moved on from lower level <laughs> writing of Shakespeare to the higher level writing of uh, Vince Russo and Vince McMahon. Um, you know, what, what I mean, where else do you go? And Cactus Jack and Chainsaw Charlie won the titles at WrestleMania. It was a great, great yeah, moment. That's a good one. Um, Undertaker beat Kane. Hell of a hell of a card there. Stone Cold beating Shawn Michaels. That's a classic match. That WrestleMania would... 14 was a pretty big WrestleMania. Was it? I feel... That was like the beginning of the Attitude Era. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. With that's WrestleMania 17. That's which so I think funny, Mario. That is literally right. Pirate? That's when I checked out. WrestleMania 17 was like pre DX, right before oh. DX came into existence. That's when, like, my brother went, like, and I was just like, I'm all done. That's when I, that's when I checked, uh, yeah, that's when I checked out, too. I didn't like the Attitude Era stuff. I yeah. Thought it was, thought it was, thought it was nasty. Didn't I just like didn't think, I mean, I liked I the came wrestling. Back, I, humorously enough, so after WCW gets bought out in March 2001. I'm recording all of this. I know. <laughs> after WCW gets bought out in 2001. Uh-huh. 
Uh, WrestleMania 17 has, I believe, the highest buy rate. The year has the highest buy rate in WWF history, or Invasion in June of that year has the highest buy rate. Uh, they both have over a million buy rates, which is just fucking insane for a non-boxing pay-per-view. Um, the ratings start significantly dropping off after that over the next six weeks because, you know, there's no competition, mm-hmm. and the storylines obviously drop off. Um, and it's been on basically a downward slide ever since. It goes from, like, the heights of getting seven eights in the ratings now it's like barely managing like a one eight mm-hmm. uh that's why that's why i came back was after <laughs> 17 i'm like oh i'm going to start watching wrestling hmm. it's bad and I, and I stopped watching wwe yeah. recently i'm done with it i don't the saudi thing is too much for me the and saudi now thing well they're they're taking like 50 million dollars or something like that some ridiculous amount of money every to do two pay-per-views in saudi arabia each year oh really and they're just like Turning a complete bind eye to like everything going on with that. Oh well, yeah. There's there's wrestlers who are not allowed to go. Like uh, there's a Syrian. Um, there's a wrestler who's a Canadian, but he's he's from Syria. Like his background's from Syria. He's just not allowed to go. They're like, no, he's not allowed to go here. There's another wrestler who's like his character's kind of like quasi demonic, and are like, no, he's not allowed to go there. And, and like the women, women aren't allowed to wrestle at all. And they're trying to do this like progressive women. Uh, thing right now, woman yeah, yeah, invented yeah. WrestleMania this year. Yeah, and they're like, <laughs> no, like Saudi Arabia is like, no, you're not gonna have any of that. And nobody's like, yeah, okay, we'll take all the money and do this. And it's like, no, I'm not gonna support that. Well, Linden... I'm not gonna support a company that that openly, you know, like obviously Coca-Cola, Starbucks, whatever. All those people, all those companies are still supporting regimes like that. Um, but a company that so blatantly and openly does that, you just can't. And, and in the face of trying to be progressive, mm. you just can't do it. And I'll, now you have all elite wrestling. Well, you just can, start it up. Yeah, and you can argue that like those companies Which aren't is be the supporting company. necessarily a regime. They're supporting like a capitalist attitude and stuff like that. But if you're saying that like the the, can't have the your Saudi regime is saying come over here and do wrestling, like that's a big that's a big deal. Yeah, and, and but you also can't you can't say that and it means like we're really progressive at having women main event, but we're going to listen to this country that's giving us a bunch of money and says women can't wrestle here. Does anyone think they're actually very progressive though, or are they no, just responding does. to like the will of like the fans for once in their life? Yeah, exactly. Well, they have to because their ratings are tanking. They have a finally new competition. Mm-hmm. Uh, All Elite Wrestling just got supported by the cons that's coming up. And like right, that's the Jaguars owner. Yeah, yeah. That's being super progressive. Their first pay per view fucking was awesome. Their next pay per view coming out later this month is free. Free pay per view. Yeah, what? you should come over Saturday twenty ninth. June twenty. Wait, June twenty ninth. You're, you're free, aren't you? That that day. Isn't Saturday. That, yeah, isn't that the day? Isn't that? I don't know. Isn't that the time when? Why am I closing up the mic? I, that's when it is. But like, I have plans with like my, my brothers in law. Well, I thought you were gonna say your brother. He might come too. Your brother would 100% want to watch this pay-per-view. Yeah. I don't know if he'd be allowed to stay out all day, though. We're going to get drunk at New England Brewing Company. Watch. Watch. I don't really want to watch wrestling. The last time I watched wrestling was at my brother's bachelor party, and we all fell asleep. It was a Survivor Series. Well, it's because of WWE. It's AEW. It's different. You got Kenny Omega. You got Kenny Omega and WWE. Let's not talk about this anymore. But anyway... (laughs) Um, I'll, I'll quickly wrap up that part though. But yeah, okay. no, it's just, it's just, like, cut out some of that, and then, but no, just, I just can't support crap like that anymore. Which makes sense. And I have, I have more progressive wrestling things I can support, especially since, like, wrestling, like, the, the, the actual fan base has become more liberal. They're fucked. I'm gonna say that right now. This is my hard take. I think WWE is done in, like, ten years. Oh, that'd be, that'd be funny. Good. 
Good for the state of Connecticut. Lose that tax money, too. I doubt they pay very much taxes. Oh, probably not. <laughs> if you want to pay taxes, you can... <laughs> if you want to tell us some other people who don't pay taxes. <laughs> you or can if you're from it. the WWE, you want to tell us about all the taxes you pay. <laughs> you can tweet us at twitter.com slash filmpivotal. Uh, or you can uh, send us an email to pivotalfilmpodcast at gmail.com or go to pivotalfilm.com. And uh, you can contact us there, see a list of the movies that we've talked about, or the beers that we drank. And if you if you had to describe pivotal film in 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 a plot synopsis, how would you start it with pivotal films? The story of it's a story of two guys who um, can't stay on topic, who can't stay on topic, who have very disparate tastes in movies, but have decided to, <laughs> to do a podcast where they liberal. compare them. Um, <laughs> And and we'll eventually just agree on how much they hate southern states who are trying to claim ownership of women's bodies. Yeah, what did I see that Alabama? I don't want to go. I don't want to see, no, we can't, Al- we can't do two separate topics. What but, did Alabama do today? Like, oh, I don't know. About the like, chemical castration? Like, what, was, what are we doing? <sighs> Jesus Christ. Drink a beer. Do a movie. Go for it. We'll talk to you next week. <laughs> <laughs>